Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, November 16th, 2010. You know, Thanksgiving's just around the corner. And they're saying we're going to get snow here in uh, Indiana, middle of the week, a couple of days away. I've donned my fuzzy bunny slippers. And uh, believe it or not, it's going to be a normal program today. Hard to believe, but true. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, I want to I let you all know I'm fully aware of the controversy that is swirling around out there regarding Dan Kimball's appearance here on Fighting for the Faith yesterday. That being the case, I want to clear up a couple of things because uh, there's been some misinformation uh, passed along that I I need to clear up. Uh, A good sister in Christ is concerned about uh, Dan Kimball's appearance here on Fighting for the Faith, and she is totally entitled to her own opinions. And uh, I've come to different conclusions than, than she has, and as a result of it, you know, it's important that you understand that I don't want to uh, I don't want to wrongly attack a concerned Christian sister. That being the case, it's important to, for you to understand a couple of things. Number one, I've addressed this on the program in the past, and I'll be happy to address it on this edition of Fighting for the Faith and any future editions of Fighting for the Faith. Yes, I have taken photographs with people who are heretics. It's true. It's true. If you were to visit my Facebook wall and you were to visit uh, the photo section on my Facebook wall and look at my photo albums, you will see that uh, there is prominently displayed a photograph of myself with Nadia Bowles-Weber, Jay Baker, and uh, Tony Jones in front of the Pirate Christian Radio Mobile. And uh, that being the case... uh, there was something that was said about me today that was that was absolutely not true, and I need to clear that up. Number one, uh, and and here's what it is. Are you ready? I do not consider Jay Baker, Nadia Bowles Weber, or Tony Jones to be brother uh, brothers or sister in Christ. Why? Because in each of their cases, they hold to heretical theology. They do not subscribe to the historic Orthodox Christian faith. Uh, Nadia is closer than others, and uh, she is a dear friend, but I do not consider either Jay Baker, Tony Jones, or Nadia Bowles-Weber to be uh, siblings in Christ. 
And uh, my appeal to them is that they repent of their false doctrine and uh, be forgiven for their heresies and, uh, and, and well, uh, re- repent, you know, to be forgiven, to join Christianity, not uh, to continue down the path that they have been, they've been uh, traveling. So that was, some, that was said about me today, that I've said that Jay Baker, Nadia Bowles-Weber, and Tony Jones are brothers and sisters in Christ. No, I've never said that. In fact, you can't go back into the record and see that I've said that. Now, I have said that Dan Kimball is a brother in Christ, and I base that on my conversations with him. And like what you heard yesterday was one of the conversations I've had with Dan Kimball. That being the case, I have never said that I completely endorse everything that Dan Kimball does. In fact, one of the things I've made clear here on at Fighting for the Faith is that uh, methodologically speaking, there are some, well, there's some problems with the things that Dan Kimball has promoted uh, in his books and other things. And Dan and I are in conversation regarding those things. And Dan even hinted at that yesterday when he talked about the fact that uh, I had talked to him about Druckerite methodologies. We had a very long conversation centering on Druckerite methodologies and the assumptions that are behind them and why I think they are false and unbiblical, and we continue to do so. And so we are in an amicable, amiable conversation regarding those uh, regarding those practices. So I have not put my stamp of approval on uh, Dan Kimball's books and, and his practices. In fact, I would say if you're going to read anything that Dan Kimball has written, as well as anything I've written, you have to read it with discernment. You always have to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. That being the case, there's two things I can say you know, right off the bat uh, that uh, we need to uh, uh, that we need to be in brotherly conversations uh, with Dan Kimball. Number one, um, his methodologies. Um, especially the Druckerite methodologies that he holds to regarding attractional churches and things like that. And this is something that came up yesterday in his interview uh, regarding how he morphs things uh, to be more culturally appealing. Although I understood where he was coming from, there's a problem. And here, here, let me, I'll explain what I consider to be the, the crux of the problem. And that is, is this, the reason why people are not in church is not because churches are culturally irrelevant. If we look at this biblically, the reason why people are not in church, and it doesn't matter what their age range or you know what they grew up subculture-wise, the, the prom, predominant reason why people are not in church are these, sin and unbelief. Th- those are the categories we're working with with those who are not in church. So if somebody claims that they're a Christian, that they claim that they believe in Jesus Christ and they're not going to church, they're breaking the commandment uh, regarding remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy and uh, and all of the things that that fall that flow from that. So if you have a Christian brother or sister who's not attending church, if, if the reason they're not there is because they're in sin and they need to repent and be forgiven and quit that nonsense. Now as for the unbelievers out there, the reason why they're not showing up at church is not because your church uses an organ. And the reason they're at church is not because your your pastor teaches expositorily or because your 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 pastor teaches exegetically or anything like that. The reason they're not at church, plain and simple, they don't believe in Christ. 
That's the reason why people are not in church. And you can't make the gospel appealing because the gospel is a stumbling block. We preach Christ and him crucified for our sins, which is a uh, a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to Greeks. So you can't make your church appealing to unbelievers because unbelievers don't become believers by making the church appealing. Unbelievers become believers through the preaching of the gospel. And so, uh, you know, if we were to further, you know, ex- you know if, if, as I continue my conversation with Dan, and these are things that you might want to consider writing about if you, if you blog or you talk about such things, focus in on the fact that the biblical monergism makes it clear that the reason why people are not in church is because of sin and unbelief, not because the church doesn't have the right social, cultural, subcultural trappings. And so as a result of it, when we come together for church, we're not doing that to put on a show, to be appealing to the subculture. And each and every generation has their contribution to the church that they've given. And, uh, and those, are, those are to be celebrated, but not rejected either. And so uh, those, are, those are some areas that uh, we can point to. And then something else that came up in the interview yesterday, and uh, that is, is that Dan Kimball... You know, when I pushed him and uh, had him talk about uh, mysticism, it was clear from uh, from what the way Dan answered my questions on that that um, he he is not a mystic. That being said, is that when he his understanding of lectio divina was a non mysticism form of it. Here's the problem. And uh, and if I could just communicate this really clearly and really succinctly and really easily, the, the major problem with this is this, then, is that Dan has written in his books and promoted these practices by name and at the same time is claiming naivete regarding, well, the bigger issues involved, for instance, the labyrinth and, uh, and uh, Lectio Divina. The, the the problem is is that what he's what his experience was with these things was something that didn't necessarily embrace mysticism and so he promoted labyrinths and the lectio divina by name but really didn't do a good job of explaining the dangers of the labyrinth and lectio divina as it pertains to the fact that in many cases the folks who practice the labyrinth and lectio divina practice them in such a way as to practice mysticism. These are uh, practices by name that historically have included mysticism as part of the elements. And so as a result of it, Dan in his books has not done a good job of explaining over, you know the overall history of the practices, and maybe it's because he didn't understand it and didn't research and didn't get to know it. And so he promoted these practices by name without ever really giving clear warning as to how these things have been misused in such a way as to get into an altered state of consciousness and practice mysticism. So as a result of it, Dan has explained that he didn't understand the greater implications of what was going on and the greater controversy surrounding uh, mystic, uh, the mysticism elements of of labyrinths and the lectio divina, and so I would I would challenge Dan and basically say that now that he understands that, and it's clear that he's gone on record as, as saying that he understands the greater um, the greater 
controversy and debate regarding those practices, especially as it pertains to the mysticism elements that that have been historically practiced and attached to them, that uh, he has a responsibility to clear that up and uh, and to clear it up in such a if I could suggest a couple of ways in which he could clear that up one to begin with he could write a blog post where he acknowledges the abuses of those practices uh, and uh, in in regards to how mysticism has been used in bringing those explain how he didn't understand that historically and make it clear that he does not endorse mysticism and believes that mysticism is dangerous biblically, and here's why, so he he should do that. And what he may want to consider doing is in his books where these practices that have also been used for mysticism have been uh, endorsed by him by name, that he, that he really needs to consider the next run through uh, you know, clearing that up. If if the if the books go into a next run, he needs to consider you know writing an editor reworking those chapters so that people understand that mysticism is dangerous and isn't Christian, and that he's not endorsing mysticism. Instead, he's promoting you know a practice that has the same name but doesn't include mysticism. I mean, to me that sounds like you know enjoying uh, Coca Cola without any sugar, but. That's a different story altogether. So, I mean, th- that being the case, since Dan has embraced orthodoxy, and uh, and since it's clear that he, he he believes that Jesus Christ is the only way, he teaches that hell is real. Uh, by the way, he's uh, you know he's this he's even publicly come out and said that homosexuality is a sin that needs to be forgiven by Christ. Um, that he believes that uh, salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. He's not a universalist. These are all great things, and so we should be very thankful that uh, Dan Kimball has has bravely come out in his own voice and in, and basically made it very clear where he stands uh, regarding historic orthodoxy. That being the case, methodologically what we want to see him do as well is uh, is clarify, further clarify uh you know uh, the things that he's written about in his books so that other people are not deceived. I mean, the last thing I think Dan wants to have happen is that somebody read his book, and you know, something that he's written, endorsing a particular practice like Lectio Divina, and then that leads them into mysticism. That I, I don't think that Dan would want that, be, so that that person is then deceived and is following a you know basically a dece- deceiving spirit. I, I just I you know in my conversations with Dan. I don't think that's what he wants to have happen at all, and I think it's very possible that that may have happened, and as a result of it, he really has a responsibility to the greater body of Christ to clarify these things uh, in his own writing and to uh, make sure that, you know, if he's going to continue to promote in his books, even if the, the, the books that have been written in 2003 on the emerging church, uh, practices like Lectio Divina, that he makes it very clear where the guidelines are biblically uh, and uh, what it is that he's really truly endorsing and what practices uh, are not to be practiced by Christians. So, you know, I, I, that's, I, I'm encouraged along those lines. So uh, basically coming back to what I was saying at the opening of the program, um, no, I do not consider anybody in the emergent village camp who attacks uh, historic Christianity to be a brother or sister in Christ. No, I've made it clear that they're heretics and uh, they need to repent and be forgiven for their heresy. 
Dan Kimball has embraced and publicly affirmed orthodoxy. I can't see into his heart. And I believe that his his public profession of orthodoxy is sincere and flows from uh, a repentant faith in Christ. That being the case, there's some things that he's written about methodologically. Now that I know that he's uh, in in orth- in Christian orthodoxy, that he has a responsibility to the greater body of Christ to clarify and uh, make sure that people are not going uh, the wrong way. In uh, you know, and uh, in you know that his works aren't being used by the devil to ensnare people into false biblical practices and uh, and open them up to deceiving spirits. So, um, do I think Dan Kimball will do that? Absolutely, and uh, that would be my admonishment as his Christian brother to that he would uh, further clarify these things and w- properly warn people regarding uh, the practices that he didn't properly understand. The full spectrum of the controversy regarding so, and I think yesterday's edition of Fighting for the Faith was a step in that direction. So, again, I'm very thankful for uh, Dan coming on the program. Now, that being said, I I got to clarify some further things here, and uh, and what I what I'm going to do here is um, I'm going to play for you audio from two things. Uh, I'm going to play for you audio from two completely different things. Uh, The first of the audio snippets comes from um, uh, the movie Monty Python's The Holy Grail. And uh, this is my admonishment. And that is, is that anybody who wants to or is currently involved in discernment work uh, either on the internet or in or writing books or giving lectures, that uh, the one of the things I think is absolutely beholden upon everybody in the discernment camp is that they practice good discernment. And the last thing we want to do is to misinform people about somebody who is teaching things that may be contrary to Scripture— we always we, you can't fight lies with lies and you don't want to engage in dubious reasoning as as it pertains to those who are who may be teaching false doctrine or maybe teaching methodologies that open people up to dangerous things so as a result of that i thought this would be a good reminder for everybody regarding this particular fact by uh, playing for you what I think is one of the funnier sketches from Monty Python's uh, movie, The uh, The Holy Grail. And uh, this is the uh, the witch scene. Uh, yeah, l- l- let me play this. You'll see what I mean. Now, what you can't see is happening here is that they ha- the the village people, uh, not not the the group that sings YMCA, but the village folk in this uh, village in uh, medieval times during the time of King Arthur, they have found a witch and they're bringing the witch to the lord of their village to uh, put her on trial. Yeah, we know she's a witch because she looks like one. 
Passing the forward. Not a witch, I'm not a witch. Uh, but you are just as one. They dressed me up like this. <laughs> now, this poor lady, if you haven't seen this uh, sketch, you know, she, the poor thing, She's uh, they put a witch hat on her and they put a big carrot nose on her to make her look like a witch. And so they said, well, how do you know she's, well, she looks like one. And they, they're the ones who made her look this way. And this isn't my nose, it's a false one. He's checking. Will? Well, we did do the nose. The nose? And the hat. But she's a witch. Did you dress her up like this? No! 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 no. no. Yes. 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 A bit. A bit. A bit. She has got a wart. Yeah, that makes you think. That proves that if she has a wart, she's a witch. She's a witch. Oh, she turned me into a newt. A newt. Got better. Burn her anyway! Burn her anyway! Burn her anyway! Now here comes some the just I mean we're talking steel bear trap logic here. I mean wait till you hear this. A ways of telling whether she is a witch. Tell me, what do you do with witches? What you burn apart from witches? Four witches! Wood! So, why do witches burn? They look stumped. Because they're made of wood. Good! Oh, yeah. Yeah, witches burn because they're made of wood. How do we tell whether she is made of wood? Build a bridge out of her. Ah, but can you not also make bridges out of stone? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. Uh, Does a wood sink in water? No, no. no it floats. It floats. Throw her into the pond. <laughs> what also floats in water? Bread. Apples. Uh, very small rocks. Cider. A great gravy. Cherries. Mud. A churches. Churches. Lead. Lead. A duck. <laughs> That's right. Ducks float in water. Exactly. So, logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore... A witch! A witch! Yeah, that's right, all right, yeah, <clears throat> I think you get the idea here. Yeah, we when we do discernment work, okay, we don't want to dis- to decide whether or not somebody is a heretic this way. This is yeah, no, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do this kind of thing. So you, you instead, what you have to do is you have to look at the evidence and you have to draw conclusions based on the evidence. So. That being the case, those people who are somehow engaging in dubious logic, you know, to somehow claim that I've come under the influence, that I uh, that I'm somehow compromised theologically because well, I refuse to say that Dan Kimball is a heretic. 
they're doing this exact kind of logic. It's, how do we know she's a witch? Well, let's think about this for a second. Why do witches burn? Well, the reason why witches burn is because they're made of wood. Ah, okay, and so uh, how can you tell then if... uh, if a witch is is made out of wood, well, you have to see whether or not she weighs the same as a duck. And if she weighs the same as a duck, therefore, she's then she's made out of wood, and then that proves that she's a witch. <laughs> so, here's the deal. There are some out there in the discernment camp who want to say Dan Kimball is a heretic. That he's, well, he's a bad guy because he was once seen in a photograph with other known heretics like Tony Jones, Doug Paget, well, Leonard Sweet. And we all know what Leonard Sweet teaches. And yeah, by the way, I think Leonard Sweet is a heretic, but that's a different story. But uh, so therefore, because Dan Kimball, well, he's getting his Ph.D. from the same college where <gasps> heretic... Leonard Sweet is also teaching. Therefore, that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, Dan Kimball's a heretic. You don't do a lot. You don't do it this way. What you say is, is hey, Dan, what do you believe teach and confess? What do you think about mysticism? And what you do is you get his answers, and then you decide, okay, well, okay, is this guy teaching orthodoxy or is he teaching heterodoxy? Is he teaching orthopraxy, heteropraxy, or is he teaching mysticism? You let the evidence speak for itself, and then you make your decisions. So here's what we got with Dan Kimball. What we have is somebody who confesses historic orthodox Christianity There may be some heterodox doctrines that he holds to, and he's got some practices that he's endorsed and some folks that he's endorsed along the way in his emerging journey that, well, are troublesome. And the reason why they're troublesome is because it might show that he hasn't exactly properly practiced good discernment along the way. And this is one of the reasons why I asked him the question, well, if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently? Okay, so... You don't, when it, listen, when you're doing discernment work, it's not a witch hunt. It's not a witch hunt. And you got to understand that, that even if somebody confesses Orthodox Christianity, they may be endorsing practices or things that, well, are dangerous. So as a result of it, everybody, including brothers and sisters in Christ, are to have their actions, have their theology, judged by the Word of God. But we don't serve the body of Christ well at all when we, well, engage in Monty Python-esque type witch hunts. Now, I'm going to take my first break, and when I come back, what we're going to do is we're going to listen to the late Dr. Walter Martin on a lecture that he, the first few minutes of a lecture that he uh, gave regarding Seventh-day Adventism. And funny enough, Dr. Walter Martin took a lot of flack because of his position and his stand regarding Seventh-day Adventists. Does Walter Martin, did Walter Martin have some very strong opinions regarding some of the false doctrine that the Seventh-day Adventists were promoting? You bet your bippy he did. But did Walter Martin consider Seventh-day Adventists to be a cult? No, he didn't. He and Dr. Gr- Donald, Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, were raked over the coals because they said the evidence showed 
what we were dealing with in the Seventh-day Adventist denomination religion was heterodox Christianity, but not the kingdom of the cults. When we get back, I'm going to play for you the first few minutes of Dr. Walter Martin's lecture where he talks about these distinctives, and I think they play into the uh, what we're dealing with here now regarding Dan Kimball, and I think it's cogent, and I think it's necessary for you to hear that. So when we get back, we'll listen to that. And then uh, what I also have uh, on deck, let's see here. I've got John Walton, who's the uh, professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College in, in Illinois, um, he's got a video that he's done that's appeared at the BioLagos website, and we're going to have to do some comparative work there. And then for our sermon review today, I've got <laughs> a doozer of a <clears throat> Perry Noble sermon. So, uh, you know, you, you don't want to miss that. Now, if you would like to uh, email me or talk to me or, you know, send me a message you know, regarding anything I've said on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address... Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. 
Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Well, well, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Discernment isn't about witch hunting. In many cases, it's about correcting an erring brother. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work 
and Mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, as promised, I've got some audio from a lecture delivered by the late Dr. Walter Martin regarding Seventh-day Adventism. And in this lecture, the opening uh, you know, few minutes of it, he talks about a controversy back uh, when he and Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse put out an article basically daring to challenge the um, the standard evangelical perception at the time that the Seventh-day Adventists were a cult. Here is Dr. Walter Martin. This evening, I announced last night that we would be talking on the subject Seventh-day Adventism because of the great number of Adventist works in California and because of uh, the differences of opinion that exist between Adventist theology and what we would call classical orthodoxy. I would say at the outset that I have written extensively on the subject of Seventh-day Adventism in my book, The Truth About Seventh-day Adventism, and there is an appendix in the Kingdom of the Cults uh, on the subject of Seventh-day Adventism. It is there for the precise purpose of demonstrating that Seventh-day Adventism is not a cult. And uh, I do not consider them a non-Christian cult in the same category of Spiritism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Christian Science, Spiritism, or the things which we have been discussing. Seventh-day Adventism uh, has been classified historically with the cults by scholars and by evangelicals through the years. In the 1950s, Donald Gray Barnhouse and myself wrote a series of articles on the subject in which we came to the conclusion after extensive and intensive research that Seventh-day Adventism had moved a long way from its initial positions in certain areas and that many Adventists could be classified as evangelicals. Though there was within Adventist theology legalism, there was heretical teaching, there were things that would separate us from fellowship in certain areas. Now notice he says that they're not necessarily heretical, that they're not in the kingdom of the cults. Does that mean he endorsed everything Adventism teaches? No, in much the same way, just because I say Dan Kimball is my Christian brother does not at all, under any circumstances, mean that I've now put my stamp of approval on everything that Dan Kimball has uh, promoted, endorsed, and taught. That is an incorrect conclusion and contrary to what I've said, much the same way if we were to make the claim, well, he just said that Adventists were not cultists, that means that they're okay. but that it was certainly possible that many Adventists knew the Lord as their Savior, and it was not fair to classify Seventh-day Adventists in the category with known non-Christian cultists who are antagonistic to biblical Christianity. Right. Is Dan Kimball antagonistic to historical Christianity? No, he is not. Because of that... We came out in Eternity Magazine with a series of articles, followed by a book that I wrote on the subject, and we reaped the storm of protest from the evangelical world. Eternity Magazine, I believe, lost more than 13,000 subscribers in the next 
six months as a result of Barnhouse's position. To his everlasting credit, Dr. Barnhouse said to me at the time when he was being urged to reconsider, he said, is the research valid? And I said, absolutely. He said, then we stay with it. If we lose every subscriber, the truth is the truth. And God will bless it. We got back to 13,000 subscribers and about 10,000 more in the end. And the position which we outlined, I have never altered and don't intend to alter now. We have differences with Seventh-day Adventists and with the theology of Seventh-day Adventism, and we will discuss some of those things this evening. We'll answer questions on them and on uh, Herbert Armstrong and on other cultic systems. But it is imperative for us to understand that Adventism came from some very radical positions to some very sound positions uh, in the last 75 to 80 years. That does not mean that all Seventh-day Adventists are believers any more than it means that all Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Congregationalists, etc., are believers, because they're not. A person is a believer not because they're members of a denomination or subscribe to a set of creedal propositions. A person is a believer if that person has an experience of redemption with the historic Christ of divine revelation and if they have passed out of death into life and if they are the temple of the Holy Spirit and he works in them and his fruit and his power is evident in their lives. The rest God must judge. But to classify people who believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus Christ, his atonement for our sins, his bodily resurrection and his second advent, and in salvation through the blood of the cross and his grace, as non-Christian cultists, is a vast error of the evangelical church. I agree. And did we not hear Dan Kimball in his own words affirming all of the historic doctrines of Christianity? The virgin birth, Christ's penal substitutionary atonement, hell, judgment, all of that. So Walter Martin's making my case for me from what he experienced historically regarding the controversy about him claiming that Seventh-day Adventists were not cultists. Which we felt, both Dr. Barnhouse and myself, should not be permitted to go unanswered anymore. That is why we took the position we took. Now, there are people who've disagreed with us through the years, some lovingly, some not so lovingly, some with a vengeance, but always the position has been maintained by us and by myself since his death, not with reservation but with conviction, that Adventism, though differing from historic Christianity, uh, most certainly cannot fit the kingdom of the cults. Uh, Anthony Hokema, who uh, is a very competent Christian educator and writer who's written the book, The Four Major Cults, disagrees with me. Uh, Jan Carol Van Balen in The Chaos of Cults disagrees with me. Uh, Louis Talbot, the late Imar Dihan, disagreed with me. 
I do not challenge their honesty of conviction nor their right to disagree. I simply suggest that we let the evidence speak for itself rather than simply arrive at a fiat decision that this is the way it is and we're not going to change our minds no matter what happens. Too often evangelicals have said through the years, don't confuse me with the facts, I've already made up my mind. And Barnhouse used to say, when most people say that they're thinking, they're not really thinking, they're rearranging their prejudices. <laughs> I think he was right. I found this to be true. Some good words of wisdom from Dr. Walter Martin, who historically dealt with a topic I think is very similar to what I'm experiencing uh, in my refusal to say that Dan Kimball is a heretic. You don't take somebody who affirms the historic doctrines of Orthodox Christianity and say that they're a heretic. Now, they may be heterodox. They, they may be involved in heteropraxy. There may be things that they're teaching that are dangerous, but we got to deal with what the evidence say, says and speak truthfully to it. Now, it's important to note in the rest of this lecture, Dr. Walter Martin goes after the aberrant and errant teaching of the Seventh-day Adventists. And I want to make something clear. I haven't gone after Dan Kimball's aberrant methodologies, not in full force on this program, okay? That's coming. I will be going after them because they need to be gone after, and I began to do that at the beginning of the program. So, you know, it's it, as this thing develops and unfolds, it's one step at a time, one chapter at a time, one thing at a time. But in the meantime, I am thankful that Dan Kimball has publicly, clearly confessed the historic doctrines of the historic Orthodox Christian faith. I think that goes a long way towards clearing up a lot of the confusion out there in emerging circles. And I know for a fact that there are some in the emerging church who, well, they're not exactly thrilled that uh, Dan has landed where he's landed and said what he said. Why? Because they prefer the doctrinal obscurity. And Dan clearly made a case in a passion to plea for sound biblical doctrine, and clear definitions on doctrine, which should be commended rather than vilified. So that's just something to keep in mind. All right, moving along, this next segment, I got to tell you, this one's weird. This next segment is strange. We've talked about Biologos in the past here, and it's no surprise to uh, my listeners that the folks over at Biologos are, well, they're hell-bent on syncretistically mixing Christianity and, um, um, well, evolutionary theory, which is really silly because you don't need to because uh, evolution really is a house of cards. When you look at it evidentially, the thing falls apart. And if you would like you know, some books to read on the topic, go to piratechristianradio.com and click on the link for our bookstore. And we have an entire section entitled Contra Evolution. Contra Evolution. There's some very good books and titles and titles that you can pick up there. And, uh, and if you're looking for a good layperson level uh, run through the evidence against evolutionary theory, okay, um, I Lee Strobel's book on the case for the Creator is fantastic. It's well argued. It's well reasoned, and it depends upon scientific sources. And uh, and I you know Strobel has done a fantastic job of taking a very complex scientific topic 
and bringing it down so that you can understand the major issues out there as it pertains to, and the weaknesses as it pertains to evolutionary theory. It is not evolutionary fact. It, in fact, evolutionary theory has not risen to that, and the evidence continues to, well, just not be there to support it. That being the case, um, the Biologos organization, you know, I, I have a silly question to ask. This is going to sound really silly, but uh, one of the things I've noticed about Biologos, their website is really kind of top drawer, and they sure do seem to have a lot of money. And um, just I got, a, I got a question. I don't know the answer to it, but I've been poking around trying to answer the question and um, haven't found something, haven't found definitive answers either way. But here's my question Does George Soros fund the Biologos group? You're thinking, well, why would you ask that? I'm just, I'm telling you, there's something, I smell something here, because these folks are well-funded, well-funded, and they really seem to be hell-bent on deconstructing and attacking biblical Christianity. And um, so, you know, just, you know, just the question I put out there, if you have the answer to this, I'd like to know. Either way, I don't know the answer to it. So yes or no, I mean... No is fine, and yes is, well, that's provocative. But um, but I've been trying to track that down because somebody sent me an email that hinted at that possibility, but I can't confirm or deny the evidence at this point. So just a question I have, just a question I have. Anyway, um, that being the, ca- that being the case, the, uh, there's a, the, a new video out there on the Biologos website entitled uh, well, let's see. It's in a blog post from the 10th of November called Defending the Authority of Scripture. And boy, this is weird. Okay. Uh, John Walton, of uh, a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College in Illinois, um, and he's also written uh, comparative studies and commentaries regarding the Old Testament, has a book out called Lost World of Genesis 1. And he is making some weird distinctions that. Uh, Seem like he's engaging in eisegesis, and then you know my question immediately is: is that how is this being used by the BioLogos organization to further their agenda? Because again, they consider the fact that we are that Christians refuse to believe on good grounds, by the way, that um, that uh, evolutionary theory is true, and that's literally the the true scientific explanation for the origins of of species and humanity. Uh, and, well, on top of it, the Bible con- flat out contradicts it. I mean, the Biologos folks, they don't believe in a literal Adam, yet the Apostle Paul clearly taught it, and so did Jesus. Um, and uh, the Bible teaches that death came into the world as a result of sin, whereas if you believe in evolutionary theory, then you've got to believe that death was the means by which we evolved into uh well, from sludge and slime into uh, into the beings that we are now. So death is the mechanism for life uh, in the form of survival of the fittest, uh, if you buy into their way of thinking. So you, you got this collision. Who are you going to believe? And so then you got uh, good old um, John Walton for from uh, Wheaton College in Illinois saying this stuff, and uh, you, I just don't even know what to make of it. But see what you think. In my book, I've tried to show that the the account in Genesis 1 is not intended to be an account of material origins. 
So Genesis 1 doesn't, it never was intended to give us an account of material origins. Now, just so you know, we're not talking about biological origins here. We're talking about material origins. So, now, this runs contrary to what I was told in my Old Testament studies class, that in Genesis 1, what we're seeing is an ex nihilo creation. What is ex nihilo? It's a fancy Latin phrase for meaning out of nothing, you know. God out of nothing, boom, created everything. That the the origins of of all matter, m- material origins, is the way he's phrasing it, uh, is what we see happening in Genesis one, and it's God speaking everything into existence. So listen to carefully to John as he tries to somehow make a case that we're not seeing the origins of matter in Genesis but rather the origins of of how God organized that matter functionally. If that's so, the Bible has no narrative of material origins. And if that's so, then we don't have to defend the Bible's narrative of material origins against a a scientific narrative. Oh, you mean a scientific narrative like, you know, um, the Big Bang. Now, listen, I... um, Call me a plebe in this area, but uh, when we read the, well, let's use his categories here, because you you haven't heard him say it, but I know it's coming. Him talking about the, quote, functional origins in the narrative in Genesis 1. Let's read this and see if Genesis 1 um, supports, well, the Big Bang. You know, functionally, I mean... If you have your Bible, flip on over to Genesis chapter 1. I'll begin at verse 1. We read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now, I want to point something out here. God created light before he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. So, boom, there's light. So, apparently, God is not working in darkness. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from waters. And God made the expanse, separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And then there was evening and there was morning on the second day. Now God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. Notice he's creating the earth at this point. Now we've got oceans and seas going forth. And uh, then we got verse 11. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, fruits, trees bearing fruit in the, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. So up to this point, we have the creation of light and the separation between light and darkness, the, creation, uh, the separation between heavens and the earth, the separation of land and the seas, and now the earth has vegetation on it. Okay. <clears throat> all right, all right. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding good seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And then there was evening and there was morning on the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the days from the night. 
and let them be for signs and for season and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. So if we're to believe John Walton's theory here, which, by the way, he's the first person to argue this way, um, at ever, um, that uh, God isn't giving us, uh, in this narrative, an origin of matter, the material world, but he's giving us a narrative of the origin of the functional things that God created. So apparently... In his view, um, he he doesn't know where the matter came from. Well, he'll he'll affirm that God created it, but well, the the creation of matter is not mentioned narratively here in Genesis one. Yet the natural reading of the text and the way Christians and Jews have interpreted this text from well ancient days of antiquity is that God spoke all these things into existence. The, um, one second there was nothing. And then the next second after God said, let there be, boom, there was. I mean, isn't the idea behind God is that he's all powerful in this sense and that he has the power and authority and the ability to speak things into existence? Yeah, see, when you read—and not only that, um, when you go with the narrative here, then then we've got this— burning question here if um if we're to understand this old earth thing and you know the big bang and things like that um the earth was um there already before the stars and the moon and the sun uh, appeared yeah just you know i'm just saying um Something's off here. Um, John seems to be engaging in some kind of uh, verbal obfuscation. At least that's what I feel is going on here. Let's continue. Because the Bible doesn't offer one. In that case, we can say, well, if the Bible doesn't offer us a narrative, we can look to science for the narrative. That doesn't mean we'll like the narrative that they give us or that we have to agree with it, but they're, they're free to give it their best shot, you know, and that's, that's... Oh, so since the Bible doesn't give us a narrative, we can look to science and they can fill in the... Yeah. Yeah, I, just, I don't think that your reading of Genesis 1 is consistent uh, with what cons- Genesis 1 really says. Great. It makes a difference in terms of what you defend. Now, of course, I believe that the Bible offers us a theology of material origins. So what's the difference between a theology of material origins and a narrative of material origins? Because so much theology is wrapped up in historical narrative. How do you define those two terms that we can somehow tease them out that they mean separate things here? That is, there would be no doubt that whatever there is, God made it. But that's a different thing from saying that Genesis 1 contains the narrative that gives an account of material origins. There's a theology of, of origins, material and otherwise, that I believe is biblical, that I believe the Israelites would have understood. That is, that whatever, it, whatever exists... I believe that the Israelites would have understood. How, really, how, do you, how can you get into their mind and know that they would have understood it this way if they haven't spoken of it in this way? God made it. God's responsible. Okay. Now, that's different from saying, what part of the story do we have in Genesis 1? I don't think we have the material part of the story in Genesis 1. 
Okay, so it's, and I know a lot of theologians who would disagree with you vehemently, starting with this one. Not offering that narrative of material origins. As I write in the book, I call it a narrative for as an account of functional origins, how it works, how it works for us, the people that God made this all for. God didn't make it for himself. He doesn't need any of that. He made it for us, and then he inhabited it. That's the rest. He comes into this cosmic temple, and that's, uh, he makes it functional for us. That's the account. That- yeah, this is what happens when you engage in, well, subjective speculation. That we have. That's what the Israelites would have looked for. That's what would have, they would have cared most about. Uh, can you prove that? How do you know what they would have been looking for and what they would have cared most about? And how is it what the Israelites were looking for and what they cared most about somehow becomes the thing that decides what the text says? It doesn't matter what they expected. The question, the question is, what did God reveal? Let me give you an example. Okay, when God revealed who he was and what he expected regarding worship of him at Mount Sinai, that wasn't at all what the children of Israel expected. They had just spent several hundred years in slavery in Egypt, and they had it all worked out in their head what worshiping, what worshiping of God looked like. Okay. So we know what they would have expected because of how they acted. And you want to know how they acted? Well, after Moses was gone for a little bit of time up there on Mount Sinai, the uh, the Israelites said, well, we don't know what happened to poor old Moses. So what they did is um, they went to Aaron, and Aaron said, well, give me all your gold. And he threw it into the fire, and poof, out came this this golden calf. At least that's the way he tells the story. And uh, and so what happened is, is that they were worshiping Yahweh the way the Egyptians worshipped their deities. They weren't worshipping a false god. They were worshipping the god who took them out of slavery. Read the text on this. It's very clear they were worshipping Yahweh because that's what they expected. They expected that if God was going to tell them how to worship him, that that's what he would have wanted. But God wasn't thrilled with it at all. In fact, he he looked on it rather, well, disdainfully. Things did not go well for the children of Israel that day. Not well at all. Even though that's the way they expect, that's what they were expecting regarding worshiping God. So this argument that, oh, well, we... We can, we, I think the Israelites, you know, the ancient children of Israel, they would have expected a, a narrative of, of function, but not a, a narrative of, of material origins. That's ridiculous. This isn't even an argument. We can show from biblical history that what the Israelites expected is not what God revealed. And what they expected many times ran, ran contrary exactly to what God was revealing that's what has the richest theology behind it. It's not that they're unaware of the material. It's just that they didn't care about it. And so in that sense, when I say, what's Genesis 1? Genesis 1 is not an account of material origins. It's an account of functional origins. And so in that sense, the... That's a great theory that easily gets beat up by a whole bunch of facts, John. Um... Dude, put away your subjective speculation. You cannot defend this from the Bible. The Bible doesn't have the narrative of material origins. 
but it does have this underlying theology. In other words, I wouldn't want people to say, oh, so you don't believe that God actually is responsible for the manufacture of matter. Of course I believe that, but that's not the story of Genesis 1. Really, when you read Genesis 1, it sure does seem like it. You know, God spoke the world and the universe into existence ex nihilo. At least that's what theologians have been saying for thousands of years. But then again, (laughs) what do they know? You know, they were just, they didn't have John to tell them about these different expectations between functional um, uh, material, functional narratives versus material origins narratives and Ironically, nobody in church history talks this way. All right. Um, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. It's a Perry Noble sermon we get back. You, you're not going to want to miss this one. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Well, today will be more normal. Sermon review time from New Spring Church. Get out your Bibles. And, uh... You might want to get a hat to stick your face into in order to see the spiritual subtext that isn't 
there in the text itself where this is going to be a hermeneutical nightmare. Let me uh, cue up the sermon review music. Here we go. The good, the bad, and, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon uh, reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via New Spring Church, Anderson, South Carolina. Pastor, well, um, cattle rancher and bishop, Perry Noble presiding. Are you going, bishop? Yeah, well, see, here's the deal. Uh, Perry Noble, uh, well... He's offering his services to pastor your pastor. So pastors who pastor pastors, hopefully that's not confusing, pastors who pastor pastors, well, historically we've called them bishops. Now here's the problem. And, well, that's that bishops, well, in the past, there's been authority structures in place so that if they strayed from sound biblical doctrine, you can get rid of them. Yeah, and um, the there well, if Pastor Perry Bishop, I mean Bishop Perry Noble, if he's the pastor of your pastor, the problem is is that more than likely um, Perry Noble's the bishop of your pastor in such a way that well, there's no way to um, get rid of Pastor Perry Noble because there was no election that took place in on you know at your denomination's annual convention, you know, asking. You know, and for the presiding bishop of South Carolina, we have uh, these people who are going. You you can choose to elect from one, Perry Noble, two, Paul Washer. You know, somebody. You, know, you see what I'm saying? So, as a result of it, there was no vote that took place in your denomination to make Perry Noble your pastor's pastor, aka his bishop. So as a result of it, there just ain't no way to get rid of the guy unless, of course, you tell your pastor, hey, wait a second, he ain't your pastor, which I strongly suggest that you do, especially when you see how badly Perry Noble twists God's word. This is behavior that's unbecoming of a bishop. Uh, anyway, let me kill the music. So today's sermon is entitled, You Can't Outgive God. Yeah, the, the, that's the, uh, the name of the sermon by Bishop... Perry Noble of uh, New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina. Here is um, uh, Perry Noble. Everybody good? Man, love this service. Um, really quick announcement before we get started. This Thursday here at New Spring Church, we're really excited. We're hosting our first, um, first ever leadership conference. We do a big conference in the spring every year called Unleash, and it's like a church conference. Many of you, how many of you ever volunteered for Unleash? Yeah, so you know, wow, that's like the six o'clock service. So most of you know. Yeah, this was the sermon just the week before I showed up at New Spring. So uh, yeah, here he's offering to do, you know, a leadership, to be your pastor's pastor. That's a lot of fun, but the, uh, the leadership conference is a little different. We decided to do something, and, and, and let me tell you, the lineup for this leadership conference is ridiculous. Um, uh, this Thursday, Mark Driscoll is going to be here. Yeah, ridiculous is uh, the word I would have used for some of those folks, you know, like Judah Smith. 
And even the way you'd mishandled God's word there, that was pretty ridiculous. <laughs> um, Francis Chan's going to be here. Judah Smith, Judd Wilhite, um, one of my best friends, Stephen Furtick, is going to be here. And then um, since it's our leadership conference, they thought I should speak. Um, and so that's going to be cool. But what's really awesome, what we're really excited about is on Thursday night, uh, Rick Warren is going to be here. I don't know if you, yeah, we're really excited. Mr. Purpose. How many of y'all have read Purpose Driven Life? Now, Rick didn't make it. Andy Stanley had to come instead. Hey, okay, that's the six o'clock service again. Um, so it, it really is going to be exciting. And many of you are already probably signed up to, to volunteer. Um, but if you haven't and like you couldn't get signed up to volunteer, you're busy that day, that's great. What we want to do is extend to you an opportunity to come and listen to Rick speak on um, so Thursday night. It's going to start at seven o'clock and we're going to ask everybody that wants to come. If you want to come, you can come for free. The only thing is you need to sign up because once those spaces are gone, because what we're going to do is we're going to open up the, the East Auditorium, um, the, the Fuse Building, East Auditorium, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're going to open that up uh, Thursday night at 7 o'clock, and, and we're going to put the video in there, and it's going to, it's going to be awesome. It's going to ma- be amazing. And we're, we're going to keep this auditorium for the people that actually paid um, because they paid a lot of money. But we're going to, if you're a, a member, regular tenor of New Spring Church, you want to hear Rick Warren, he's going, to be, he's going to be here, but you can watch him over there, and you can show up here live. Now, it's not going to be on the Internet, so either you're going to have to be here or I don't, I don't even know if we're going to put it. So, so you're going to have to be here. Um, if you want to sign up, we've got a couple websites for you. There's, there's two websites right there. Um, people actually signed up during the service today on their cell phones. It was great. I'm sure they listened to me. Anyway, so you can go to either one of those and sign up. And listen, listen, please, please, don't sign up unless you're really going to come. Like, don't sign up and go, well, maybe I can make it unless there's that thing at the place. You know, if you're going to sign up, we're going to ask you to please show up. And it's going to be amazing. We would ask that you pray for us on Thursday. We're going to have a great time here. And for those of you that are volunteering at the event, get, it's going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant. It's going to be amazing. So anyway, um, awesome. Let me pray, and we'll jump right in. God, we, we thank you for tonight. God, I know that what we're going to talk about tonight in your word is not the easiest thing to hear. So Jesus, right now, I just pray that you would prepare our hearts to absolutely respond um, in the way that you would want us to respond. We love you, Jesus, and we ask all this in your name. Great, great prayer. I mean, we do want to respond appropriately to God's word. That does require the person preaching the word to rightly handle it, because if you don't rightly handle God's word... It's just one of these things that what happens is if you don't rightly handle it, then people don't respond to it the way God intends for them to respond to it because they're responding to the message falsely preached rather than the message the way it was intended to be preached. In other words, you can't teach sound biblical doctrine by twisting God's word and seeing things in the text that aren't there. Quick survey question for everybody here tonight, or maybe if you're watching online, welcome. By the way, let me, let me say this. Charleston Campus joined us online today. We had Charleston Campus. They're not actually meeting down there like in the building yet, but they had a, because uh, we've been doing baptisms on all of our campuses. Charleston Campus met this morning at the beach, baptized two people, and then viewed the service online on the beach. So praise God. It was awesome. Baptizing people ain't even got started yet. Man, that's church. Anyway, so how many of you, if I were going to ask the question, how many of you would love to be more blessed? How many would you say tonight, that's me? Okay, raise your hand. Okay, praise God. And some- um, uh, what? 
So, so the the paradigmatic question, the the launching question for the sermon is, how many of you guys would like to be more blessed? Oh, you mean there's something I have to do in order to be blessed more by God? Okay, I'm already nervous here. You didn't raise your hand. You're just bitter. Nobody can help you anyway. So you want to be more blessed. Now, we, we all want to be blessed in, in different ways. Like, how many of you would say, I would like to be more spiritually blessed? I would like to be closer in my walk with God. Well, of course, it's 6 o'clock service because all of you are spiritual. So you raised your hand. Okay, how many of you would love to say, um, or you would say, I would love to be relationally blessed? Like, I would not like my marriage to be better, um, or I'd like to get married. Um, oh, whoa, lots of hands. Whoa, hey, that was amazing, especially right in here. Y'all should check it. Yay. Anyway, so... How, how about this? How about this? This, is, this has been the funnest one all day. How about financially blessed? How many would love more money? Let's just be honest. Okay, yes, we're all Americans. Um, that, that's, that's true. Uh, no. uh, are you seriously, I mean, you're breaking down all these blessings. You know, you know, not that I know anything. I mean, I'm just a troublemaker and, you know, a malcontent. And as a result of it, I mean, you know, because according to Perry Noble, he seems to think that I sit in my mom's basement by the way, my mom lives in Southern California, and I live in Indiana, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but he seems to think I sit in my mom's basement that I'm um, apparently relationally challenged, don't have, uh, you know, female attention. And um, and as a result of that, you know, I sit in my underwear every day while blogging, while eating Cheetos on a beanbag. But, you know... Suffice it to say that that is not a correct caricature, and I don't even like Cheetos, and I do dress while I blog. So um, the basement's not true. I don't live with my mom. That's not true. Um, I have a wife, so I don't have to worry about that. That's not true. I don't even like Cheetos, and I wear clothing while blogging. So that being the case, um, just not that it matters or anything like that, but I've got this burning question that comes from the book of Ephesians. Here's the question. In light of what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, specifically verse 3, it makes me wonder if this is even a correct thing that Perry's saying. Let me, let me see what I, what I mean here. Ephesians chapter 1, if you have your Bible, flip on over there. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, hang on a second. got to check the Greek here because I, I want to check the tense on that has blessed thing. Hang on a second here. Who has... Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Blessed is God the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and uh, aorist active participle. He has blessed, he is blessing us. Okay, so it's an active participle. Okay, interesting. Who has blessed us and continues to currently bless us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So here's the deal, you know, just, you know, this theology of blessing here, it just seems to me that Ephesians here kind of argues against this parceling out 
about blessedness, it somehow sounds like it's all dependent upon me because when I read about the blessings that we already currently have and continue to have in an ongoing basis, in they're all in Christ already, that God has blessed us in Christ, in the blessed one, in the beloved one. They, Yeah. Um, listen to this. For in him we have the re- redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, I I understand that he thinks that, you know, Bishop Perry Noble seems to think that I'm currently sitting in my mom's basement in my underwear, eating Cheetos while stand, sitting on a beanbag. Um, but um, I'm not. And it would seem to me that the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Ephesians is making it clear that we already have all blessings that God has lavished upon us by his grace and mercy through what Christ has done for us. In other words, it sounds like all of these blessings, well, <clears throat> that they're a gift. You know, I'm just saying, you know, that's what the text seems to argue. But then again, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just a blogger and, you know, I'm, and I apparently live in my mom's basement and, you know, I never dress. I always sit in my underwear while on a beanbag blogging, eating Cheetos. But let's continue. Notice my hand was up on all three. Notice my hand that was up. And here's what's crazy about Jesus. I don't know if y'all have read his stuff. It's, it's amazing or seen his movie, either one. It's, it's really good stuff. But Jesus addresses this idea of how to be blessed. He really does. In fact, um, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, or, I'm sorry, Luke, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is quoting Paul, and Paul's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and all this stuff, but he quotes Jesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. The Bible says this, And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to what? It is more blessed to what? It is more blessed to give. So if you want to be blessed, you got to learn how to what? Mm -hmm. Whoa, that's quite a stretch you got there, Bishop Noble. Um, Yeah, um, let's take a look at Acts chapter 20, and let's put that verse 35 back in its proper context. Uh, By the way, the three proper rules for biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. Okay, let's see here. So he's at verse 35. i got to figure out where a good contextual break is. Okay. Um, All right, let's start at verse 17. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, and how, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that uh, 
imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, which I think Perry Noble would be wise to do. Uh, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Hmm, there we go, flock and sheep language here. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So wolves come in speaking twisted things and draw away disciples to themselves. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God to be uh, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, the funny thing is, is that when you put this back in its context, Paul is basically preaching a farewell sermon, warning about wolves who twist God's word and draw away disciples after himself. And this whole last part where he quotes Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, ironically there, um, Paul was not saying, if you want to be more blessed, then this are, these are the things that you want to do. All he was doing was quoting Jesus when he said, Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Hmm, I, I detect some scripture twisting going on here. I wonder if it'll get worse. That's right. That, that, that's just Jesus. That's not Perry. He's talking about money. Uh-uh, Jesus did. Jesus talked about it. 15% of Jesus' teaching was on money. And Jesus said, if we want to be blessed, it is more blessed to give. It is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, Jesus said, true blessing in life doesn't come from what we hold on to, it's what we let go of. And we've got to be willing to give. Now, re reality is this. Well, really, you got all of that out of that out of that one statement. You know, I don't, I don't see that in there at all. How are you seeing that in there? Now, if you remember, uh, last time we talked about Perry Noble's <clears throat> hermeneutical methods, and I'm I understand that I'm using that phrase in the loosest possible way, but when we were talking about Perry Noble's hermeneutical methods, I talked about the fact that he somehow has this ability to see things in the biblical text that nobody else sees. And the method goes like this. All you have to do is take a page from the Bible. You know, So if you start off, and uh, what you do is you grab a page from the Bible and you... And you you rip it out, okay? That's what you've got to do. And you know, if, if it's too big, you know, to fit in the hat, you could just you know, you could just uh, make it smaller. And then what you do is you take that text and you stick it into a hat. And then you, you it has to be at the bottom of the hat. Then you stick your face into the hat. And once your face is in the hat, you look using your spiritual eyes. Yeah, and what you're looking for. 
<sighs> gotta breathe, gotta breathe. <clears throat> what you're looking for are the green translucent spiritual letters on the page. There they are. There, I can see them now, right? The, yep, that's them. That's how Harry Noble finds things. Whew. Got to remember to breathe if you stick your face in a hat and you're looking for things in the text that, well, you're looking for the subtext that's not in the text. That's how Perry treats God's word. He finds things in there that ain't in there. And he just did that. Let's continue. One of the things we got to understand is when Jesus died on a cross, he didn't die on a cross so he could one day be a part of our life. He died on the cross so he could be our life. We got to get that. And in fact, we got to understand that God is a competitive God. I'll kind of dial it back a little bit and say, you might find this hard to believe about me. I'm a competitive person. I want to win at everything I do. I would have never guessed that about you. I'm not happy with second place. Second place is the first person to lose. That's all it is. No, nobody, listen, nobody, nobody, nobody even likes your silver ribbon. You know what I'm saying? I want to win. I'm com- in, in anything. I listen. If I like when Kara starts playing football, I'm not making this up. When she starts playing football, and I'm the football coach, I'll probably never take the second, the, the first string out. If, I think if a football team can beat another team 200 to nothing, they should do it. And everybody complains. They, they beat us 200 to nothing. Well, you should have stopped me because I want to win. I know I'm a little psychotically out of balance, but I'm in counseling and it's all good. Like when Karis and I play Candyland because she's got the princess edition. I've lost one time. I'm- Whew. <laughs> There's quite a record. Yeah, that's that, that Perry Noble. He's like 16 and one in Candyland princess edition. I'm serious. I, I like to win. Lucretia, my wife, she's competitive. She likes to win. So we've decided that. For- Who's he preaching about, by the way? <clears throat> Not Jesus. He's preaching about <laughs> Perry. For our marriage, we need to be on the same team um, because I'm, I, listen, I'm competitive. I want to win. Now, you know where I think that competitive nature comes from? Because now some of you are pushing back a little bit. You've told your kid it's not. You mean your sinful nature? No. Whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. <laughs> it's because you've never won. You played on that team growing up. You know what I'm saying? Like, nobody in this room likes losing. Everybody likes to win. And everybody likes to pull for a winner. Well, you know where, you know where I think that comes from? The, the good side, not the warp side. The good side, I think that comes from God. You know why? God's a winner. God likes to win. God wants to be first. Jesus did not die on a cross so he could be ranked in the top ten of our life. He doesn't want to be ranked number five. He doesn't want to be ranked number two. Jesus is relentless about being number one in our hearts. He is a winner and he wants to win. That's why he continues to come after your heart and my heart the way that he does. Now there's three, there's three, I, I've, been in, I've been in church work for 20 years and I've identified, now there's more, but there's three main areas where people refuse to give up and allow God to be first in their life. Number three, is forgiveness, the air of forgiveness. There's people here tonight, you're just mean, bitter, angry people. And you're in church, and listen, some of the meanest, angriest, bitterest people I've ever met are church people, all right? I'm not talking about people outside, I'm talking about people in the church. There's some mean people, deacons, mean people in the church, all right? Whew. Forgiveness, there's, there's people here tonight, you, you've, got, you've got bitterness and anger and unforgiveness towards someone in your heart, and you're just like, well, you don't know what they did to me. And you're right, but I know what they did to Jesus, and he prayed, Father, forgive them, and all that. So anyway, there's forgiveness. No, number two is sexual immorality. 
There's people here tonight, and you're having sex with somebody you're not married to. It's sexual, like, sexual immorality, sex, having sex with somebody you're not married to. Sexual immorality and porn. I got to say that because there's a single guy here going, I'm not having sex with somebody I'm not married to. Um, yes, you are. You're having sex with yourself, bro. It's pretty sick. You're a perv. Knock it off. Okay, anyway, so sexual immorality. But the first area, the number one area, the number one area where people refuse to submit their lives to Christ is the area of, anybody want to take a guess? Money. I'm not talking, listen, I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm not talking about the people outside the walls. I'm talking, we did the statistics on New Spring Church. And we figured it out at poverty level. Poverty level income across all of our campuses, less than 10% of this church tithes on a regular basis. That is sad. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's a heart issue. Now, I know some people are going, are you talking about my money? No, I'm not. I'm talking about God's money. It ain't yours. Like, seriously, die and see if, it take, see if you go with it. See, I mean, see, I mean see, seriously. God, what's up? Here's a 20. This is what Jesus said about money. This is what Jesus said about money. Let's just, once again, this is just straight up Jesus, okay? And I'm going to go with him because he used to be dead and he's now alive. It's got, he's got great stuff. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or, be, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. Then he said this, and we talked about this a little bit last week. You cannot serve, you cannot serve both God and money, which I wouldn't have said that. I would have said you cannot serve both God and the devil. But Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said, the number one competitor for your heart and my heart is what? Money. It's money. Now, I, I want to put this verse back up there because I... <clears throat> The number one competitor, we're born dead in trespasses and sins, Perry. I want you to notice something. I've read this verse 200 times probably, and I saw something this week that I never had seen, that Jesus, when he quoted this verse, he's laying down the gauntlet. I want you to see what he's saying in this verse and see why it's so important. Jesus said this, no one can serve two masters. So we're serving either God or money, right? We're serving. Now, here's what he said. Either he will hate the one and love the other. Stop. If you love money, Jesus said, you hate God. True. This is law. Now, that's strong. And there would be some people push back tonight going, well, Perry, I don't hate God. I'm here every week. Yeah. See, here's the problem. The people 2,000 years ago that showed up to church every week were actually the ones that killed Jesus. Some of the biggest God-haters I've ever met in my life are people that show up to church every week. So if you love money, you hate God. And it goes on to say, he will, he will either be devoted to one or despise the other. If you're devoted to money, you despise God. Yeah, it's called idolatry. Good, good, good. And what's the solution? Repentance, forgiveness of sins? I hope so. And you know how to tell, you know how to tell if you hate God and you despise God right now in your heart as I'm beginning to speak about money you're becoming angry and you know why you're becoming angry because the Holy Spirit of God is performing heart surgery on you without some anesthesia and it hurts when the idol gets ripped out of your heart he's coming after your heart and by the way by the way to hate God's teaching is to hate God you can't say I love God I don't like what he taught I agree, and that makes it very clear that as a well, bishop, teacher, pastor, whatever you are, 
that you have to rightly handle God's word. Now, this whole part that he's doing on the money idol thing, perfectly valid preaching of the law. This is second use to completely strip you of your self-righteousness. Perfectly valid use. The question then comes in, where does the gospel play into this? I, I don't know. We'll find out. So Jesus says it's a black and white issue. It's not a gray issue. Either you hate him or you love him, and if you love him, you serve him, and if you serve him, he has everything about us, including what? Our money. Man, that's good stuff. I had to amen. Uh, where does the cross, the gospel, forgiveness of sins, repentance? Myself, I hadn't got a lot of amens today. I really hadn't. I really hadn't. It's been fun. So here's the question. Here's the question. I want you to write this down in your outline, and we're going to kind of dig down on this. Here's the question. Is Jesus Lord of some or Lord of all? In your life, in your life and in my life, is he Lord of some or is he Lord of all? Now, i got to stop for a second. I want to point something out here. This is a law question, and at this point, we're slipping into an unlawful use. you got to be careful here because, well, maybe this isn't an unlawful use. i got to think about this because... He's asking the question, is Jesus the Lord of some or is he the Lord of all? If anybody, anybody listening to me, I don't care if you've been a Christian from, the, from you know, infancy and you're now, you know, 80 years old and you've been a Christian your entire life, um, you are not going to be able to answer the question, is Jesus Lord of some or Lord of all, by answering the question, well, obviously Jesus is Lord of all of everything in my life. Because even if you've been in the Christian faith for 80 years, from the time that you were knee-high to a grasshopper, you've been in church, you've proclaimed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've been to communion every Sunday for 80 years, you're not going to be able to answer the question, well, back when I was 65, I remember it very clearly. It was a warm spring day, someday, late in April. The, the flowers were just coming out, and that was the day in which I learned how to make Jesus Lord of all. I mean, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong, but chances are 100% of you folk listening to this broadcast or podcast um, that 100% of you will have to answer the question, hmm, I haven't figured out how to make Jesus Lord of all. So the question then comes in, if this is the solution, I have to make Jesus Lord of all, well, Jesus is only Lord of all if you stop sinning completely. The law demands perfect obedience but doesn't give you any power to pull it off. Is Jesus Lord of all or Lord of some? Answer, I keep sinning, so therefore, objectively, I have to conclude that I'm still struggling with my sinful nature who doesn't want to have anything to do with Jesus being its Lord. You see what I'm saying here? Is Jesus Christ Lord of some? Because here's what I know. Here's what I know. And I want you to hear me. In this whole series, this is going to be a three-week series, and then we're doing a two-week series called Sun Stand Still. Stephen Furtick just wrote a book. He's going to come in here. He's going to preach the paint off the walls. Then October 17th, we're starting a series called Man Versus Wife, and it's a marriage series, and it's going to be incredible, and it's going to be awesome. We got some great stuff coming up. I don't even know why I said all that. I didn't say that this morning. I'm ADD. I've had two cups of coffee before I preached tonight. God help us. Oh! I don't... 
Y'all do not need to encourage me like that. So listen. Oh, yeah, here's why I'm talking about that. I want for you to live the blessed life. I w- listen, Jesus promised us in John. This is law. I want for you to live the blessed life. The, that means you have to make Jesus Lord of all. The solution is your perfect obedience. Remember, the law only promises that you will be blessed if you keep it perfectly, not if you come within the 50th percentile on the bell curve. Chapter 10, verse 10, that you and I could live an abundant life. And by the way, abundant life does not begin when we die. We live a full life on this side of eternity and on the other side of eternity. We can live an abundant life. But I know so many Christians, followers of Jesus, that are not living the abundant life. And you know why? Because you're holding on to something God said to let go of. Uh, so you can't have the abundant life if you're, well, disobedient at all. God, see, here's the thing, uh, Perry. Um, when we read the Ten Commandments, yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff Jesus tells us to let go of. And it's not just limited to, uh, what was your list again? Forgiveness, money, and uh, and, and sexual pr- purity. Yeah, when you read the Ten Commandments, it, ooh, it talks about a whole lot more than that. And until you let go, listen, I I just want for you to get to the place where you can truly live what the Bible calls the blessed life. I appreciate that you want us to get there. The problem is, is that you're offering this to us through our obedience rather than the obedience of Christ. This comes back to the passage I quoted from uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We already have all blessing and continue to be blessed currently in Christ who has blessed us in him. How do you add to the perfect obedience of Christ? If God sees us as in Christ and covered with his 100% obedience to the law, his righteousness given to us as if we've lived it, how do we add to that in order to be blessed more? Hmm? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, it's in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to look at a really unique story um, in the Bible. It's one of the, it's one of the greatest stories um, in the Bible on the subject of giving. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. What? 1 Samuel chapter 1, isn't that the story of Eli and Hannah? It's about, What? And I want you to know tonight, if you want to live the blessed life, there's three things that you and I cannot do. Three things that you cannot do. Number one, if you want to write this down, I cannot ignore God's word. Okay, that would... Okay. I cannot ignore this is law. God's word. I cannot ignore God's word. Now, a lot of people don't like God's word because it tells the truth. And many of us, we don't like the truth. We, we, we don't. I, I'll be honest with you. There are times when I don't want to hear the truth. Because sometimes the truth hurts. The other day I was in the shower. I'm, I'm taking a shower. Karis walked in. And I'm really nervous anytime she walks in the bathroom now when I'm taking a shower. Because I told you all about the question she asked in June. I'm, still, I'm, not, I'm not talking about that again. But anyway, so naked daddy and it means more questions. And so I'm. Okay, I just did not need that. Who is he preaching about again? Himself. Jesus has made a slight appearance in this sermon. 
Yeah, first uh, through uh, Paul's quotation of Jesus, it's more blessed than to give than to receive, and then a little bit from uh, was it Matthew on uh, and, you know, about you know you can't have two masters. Jesus, well, Perry preaches more about himself than he does about Jesus. It's just something I've noticed about him. But now he's naked in the shower. Just the mental picture I needed of Bishop Perry Noble. Just like she comes in, I've got soap in my eyes. I'm cutting the shower off and turning around. And, and I'm like, what are you doing, baby? And she's like, nothing. And, and I kind of turn around. I'm washing my hair. Turn around. I get out of the shower. And she's got my underwear. And she's got them held up. And she's doing this right here. And I said, baby, what are you doing? And cares my three-year-old little girl went, daddy, these are big. I went, thank you, baby. They, thank, thank, thank you, honey. They are. And she went, no, daddy, look, I could wear them as a dress. <laughs> I said, I have a big butt and I cannot lie. Other pastors can deny. <laughs> anyway, I, I, it was the truth. It was the truth. She literally came down here. I'm like, oh my gosh, she can wear my underwear as a dress. So I spanked her. And then after that, I didn't, I didn't, that's a joke. She told the truth. Now, I'll be honest with you. I didn't like the truth. And here's the deal. I know a lot of people, I'm I'm talking about Christians now, people in the church, they go, I don't like the truth. And so we choose to rebel against authority. But here's a quick question. What if we all left here tonight and said, I don't like red lights anymore? I will never stop at another red light. Well, you know what? Your life is going to go from zero to suck in about 2.5 seconds. (laughs) Authority is given to us for our good. And we cannot ignore God's word. Let me kind of set this up in Exodus. Now, you don't have to turn there. I know I told you 1 Samuel. I'm not that ADD. I'm going to hit Exodus. I'm going to kind of set this up, and then we're going over to 1 Samuel. Exodus chapter 13, there's this big event um, about to take place in the land of Egypt called the Passover. Eventually, anyway, the, the, the Passover is about to take place. And God is laying down the, the, like the expectations for the Passover. And he says this in Exodus chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, which is like the word of God, consecrate to me every, what's this next word say? Firstborn. Don't miss that. It's huge. First, notice the, notice the word first in there. It's huge. It's going to keep coming back over and over again. Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The, what's this word say again? First. There's some patterns in here. Okay. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to who? Me, that's, that would mean God, whether, whether man or animal. So, so God said, the first belongs to me. Here, here was what God was saying. The firstborn, like, when, like if you were a lady that lived in this time period and you had a son, or if you're a man and y'all had a son, the firstborn son of every, that every woman had, the, God said, he's mine. And you literally had to bring this son to the temple. And you, you have one or two options. You could consecrate him for the work of the Lord. In other words, you could set him aside. You could give him to the temple. He was set aside for the work of the Lord. Or you could redeem him. You could pay the price set forth in the scriptures for the son, and then you could take the son home. But God said, one of the, either you got to give him to me or you got to pay the price. The firstborn son is mine. Now, now, when God says something in his word, it's important. God should never have to say something more than one time. But 16 times... In the Old Testament, God says, the firstborn son is mine. The firstborn son is mine. The firstborn son is mine. Now, when God says something one time, that's huge, but 16 times, 
I'm, I'm thinking that he's probably trying to get a point of cross. Now, skip over to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, and I'm going to read through here. Now, there's some weird names in here. I don't really know how to pronounce them, but I'm going to say them with a lot of authority so I at least sound smart. All right. I may not be a smart man. <laughs> um, there was a certain man from Raphathim, a Zufite. Any Zufites here tonight? Didn't, I didn't think so. A Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohoam, son of Elahu, son of Tohu, which sounds like something you go see the doctor about, doesn't it? What do you hear? I've got some Tohu. Anyway. He's, he can, he's a really good storyteller, isn't he? Okay, I can't wait to see how he connects Exodus 13, 1 to this passage. Why do I feel like he's not going to get it? Maybe I'm just too pessimistic. Let's continue. Son of two, son of Zuf, which is one of my all-time favorite names now in the Bible. I've been reading this all week going, Zuf is a bad name. Like, if Lucretia and I could have a son, I would name him Boaz Zuf Noble. It's not a joke. While Lucretia said, we're getting a dog next and not having another kid. Anyway, Zuf, an Ephraimite. Now, look at this. He had two wives. Which you know is a problem. Because I meant two mother in laws. <laughs> None of the single people laughed. They, didn't, they don't get it. That wasn't funny to them. Some of you married people laughed a little too hard. <laughs> two, uh, two, oh, two wives, there we go. One called Hannah and the other, and the other called Penina, which you feel sorry for her. Penina had children, but Hannah had how many? None. That's huge. Year after year, this year after year, year after year, don't miss that. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. So they went to this celebration and they did it year after year. It's just kind of like sometimes we just go to church every week after week. It's just what we do is we go to church. Where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Oh, wait, 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 wait. The Lord closed her womb. Here you got a woman named Hannah that lived during a time period. And, and, and in this time period, by the way, now we know more because we got more medical knowledge and all this stuff. But in this time period, if a woman could not have a baby, she was viewed as cursed by the Lord. Society viewed her as cursed by the Lord. So Hannah was viewed as cursed by the Lord because the Bible says she could not have children. She could not produce. The Bible says the Lord closed her womb. In other words, productivity wasn't a possibility with her. Now, you got to ask yourself why. And I believe according to what we just read and what we're about to read in a few minutes, I believe it was because Hannah refused at some point to give up the firstborn son to God. Even though what? That's what you believe. Um where does it say that in the text that you just read? It doesn't. Perry is now seeing things in the biblical text that are not there. Again, go back to our principle, you take a Bible passage you rip it out of your Bible, stick it into a hat, and then stick your face. Hang on a second. Stick your face into the hat, 
like this, and then what you do is you wait for the green letters to appear that are not there. There isn't a single text that says that Hannah couldn't conceive because she refused to consecrate her firstborn. There isn't one shred of biblical evidence to this. This is all the pure subjective speculations of Perry Noble, or apparently God speaking to him, uh, giving him information that isn't in the text itself. Now, let's see if he draws any conclusions from his suspicions. Let's continue. She knew what God's word said. She refused. She said, I ain't going to do it. I know what God's word says, but I'm simply not going to give God the first, which is the text doesn't say this at all is the exact same reason that many of us in this room wrestle with things. It's not because we see the reason why Hannah couldn't get pregnant is because she refused to consecrate the firstborn. She refused to obey God and see that proves the reason why you're not living the abundant blessed life is because you're just like Hannah. You refuse to. to... Yeah. The problem is, is that when you read the text in first Samuel, uh, it doesn't say that you don't believe me. Let's flip on over to first Samuel. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, a Zophim of the hill country of uh, Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of uh, Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. Uh, The name of one was Hannah. The the name of the other was uh, Peninnah. Peninnah had children. Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now, here's the deal. It says that the Lord closed her womb, but the text doesn't say why. It doesn't say why. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? By the way, it doesn't even make any sense that Hannah, the reason why God closed her womb is because she refused to consecrate her firstborn. doesn't make any sense because... It's it's not like Elkanah doesn't have other sons, does it? Elkanah has a firstborn son by uh, Peninnah. And he was able to redeem him just fine. He's there. So it doesn't even make any sense. This is a completely irrational, legalistic, subjective piece of nonsense that now Perry is drawing applications from. Anyway, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb, so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? 
And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now, notice she's not repenting. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry that I refused to consecrate the firstborn. I, I repent. Please have mercy on me and forgive me. But if you do, for, you know, that's not what's going on. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her lips and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be drunk, a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and went back to the house at Ramah. Then and Elkanah knew, his, knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Okay, there's nothing here about some, you know, that she was rebellious, refused to do this, that she repented, and that God finally said, now I can finally bless you. This text doesn't say anything like that. Perry is seeing things in this text that do not exist. We have an information problem. It's because we have an application problem. It's not that we don't know what God's word says about certain things. It's because we refuse to do what God's word says about things. And there's two reasons, if you want to jot these down, these aren't going to pop up on the screen, but two reasons this happens. The first one is fear. Hannah could have said, Hannah was probably saying, well, here's the deal. If I give up this child, what if it's the only child I have? What if I can't produce anymore? So God, if you ever give me a baby, I know what your word said, but I'm going to hold on to that baby because it's mine. Yet the text doesn't say any of this. He's magically finding things in the text that are not there. Or maybe it was frustration. Maybe Hannah was looking at God going, who are you to ask for my firstborn son? Hey, God, who are you to ask me to sacrifice my son? And God's going, you don't talk about sacrificing sons. I've already done that. Now, some people, you'd push back and say, oh, Perry, this is the Old Testament. Jesus, Pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip. Man, this is not in this text. Yet he's drawing applications left and right from, well, the text of his own imagination. Hadn't been sacrificed yet. The Bible says the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. He, yeah, it, it had already happened. God's outside of time, by the way. You, we understand that, right? So, so, so stay with me. There was, there was frustration. 
or there was fear and there was frustration. She said, God, I know what your word says. I'm just not going to do it. God, you didn't, you didn't make the baby. You didn't create the baby. You didn't carry the baby for nine months. Any woman's ever carried a baby for nine months has used that line on her husband. You didn't carry this baby for nine months. You better go get me some pickles and Doritos. You better, right now, you did this to me, boy. Anyway, you understand. And, and so maybe it was fear and frustration, which is why a lot of us refuse to give up to God. It's because of fear and frustration. Let, let's just walk through the area of forgiveness. A lot of people are like, I can't forgive him. I can't forgive her. Why? Fear. Uh, I, I can't believe. I mean, Perry, uh, do you think God is uh, happy with you finding things in his text that aren't there? Seriously? Fear and frustration. Fear is because if I forgive them, then I'm not going to be able to get even with them. Well, it's not your job to get even with them. The Bible says vengeance is God's, not ours. Or frustration. You're saying forgive them, but Perry, you don't know what they did to me. And you're right. And I'm acknowledging that the pain in your life is probably very real. I just know that God's word commands us to forgive. Maybe it's in the area of a relationship. No, Perry, um, yes, we, are, we Christians are commanded to forgive. Why? Because we've been forgiven. Can you talk about that a little bit? That's actually in the biblical text. The stuff you're preaching on ain't. Where a lot of people, you know what God's word says. You're dating somebody you should not be dating because they're not leading you closer to Jesus. They're leading you on a path further from Jesus. But the reason you won't give them up, fear and frustration. Fear is if I let them go, I might not be able to get anybody else. Which, you know what? It's better to date no person than the wrong person. Let me, let me take that a little bit deeper. It's Better to marry no person than the wrong person. Fear or frustration. Well, God, who you think you are? I worked hard to get them. You know, we came so far and we wrestled through this, but when, I, when we get married, it'll all be better. <laughs> all the married people laugh. Single people, did you, did you hear that? Marriage is a magnifier. It does not make things better. It magnifies all the sin in us that just didn't come out while we were faking it while we were dating. And that's the, reason, that's the reason it is with money. Fear and frustration. There's some people here tonight. You know why you won't give up your money to God? Fear. If I, if I give this away, I might, not, I might not have any more. Or frustration. Who is God to think he wants my money? Who is God to ask for my money? I would simply tell you he's God who gave you the money in the first place. That's exactly who he is. Yeah, are you giving out of the abundance of the grace that God has given to you, you know, because God loves a cheerful giver? Or is this kind of like some kind of a scheme? You know, hey, if you want to have the abundant, blessed life, well, then you you got to do this. And it's, all, isn't it weird? He found something in First Samuel that isn't there, namely that Hannah supposedly was sinning because she refused to give God her firstborn. The text says nothing of that, and he's drawing a literal life application that has something to do with money coming back to the thing that he found in the text that isn't in the text. Wow. Now, this will be fun. How do we put God first in our money? Because the Bible talks about the first, the first, the first, the first, the first. But in the Bible, how, how is it? What is the first step to us? Is NewSpring having a hard time paying it off its loans for all of its uh, audiovisual equipment and for the multi-million dollar buildings it has? 
that don't have a cross, by the way? Putting God first. By the way, I want to help you. It starts with a T. starts with a T. So the answer is not Jesus. It starts with a T. How do we put God first? We learn to bring the what? The tithe. Oh, my gosh. That is awesome. Well, I wish somebody was on there. I would have chest bumped somebody right there because that was awesome. Tithing is how we put God first. Tithing is bringing the first fruits. Tithing, let, let, here's, this is a tithe. Tithing is 10% off your gross income. 10% off the gross. Because I've had people go, do we tithe off the net or the gross? Do you want to be blessed on the net or the gross? That's exactly the same line that Ed Young used when he wanted everybody to fill out that form for the automatic withdrawal. Hmm. Law, law, law. Or when you go buy a car, do you put down the net or the gross? Isn't it funny you'll put down the gross when you're buying a car and you'll put down the net when you come to church because you love the car more than Jesus? Anyway, we'll talk about that in a minute. Tithing, the first 10% of our income goes to God. Now, listen, don't get mad. Don't get mad. Just, Just listen. We sang a song a while ago, you paid it all. You paid it all. You paid it all. How in the world can we say that our hearts belong to Jesus when we acknowledge he paid it all, but we bellyache about the 10% that he gave to us in the first place? How in the world can we... Now, you know, again, is, are Christians under the legalistic law of 10%? That's not how I read the scriptures. God loves a cheerful giver. Set apart. Stand in the shadow of a blood-stained cross and not at least do the bare minimum that God asks us to do. First 10% goes to God. Now, I know the arguments. I know the arguments. Well, Perry, tithing is Old Testament law. If you're here tonight, you're that person. I'm glad you're here. Two things about you that that tells me. Number one, you're stupid. (laughs) Number two, you don't read your Bible. You don't want to play the Bible game with me on this subject. Yeah, because I'm sure you're an expert on tithing, but you sure do stink at seeing things, well, biblical, sound biblical hermeneutics, because, um, well, yeah, that whole Han- uh, you know, Hannah being um, disobedient and not wanting to give up her firstborn, that's just not in the Bible at all. Well, but let's go ahead and hear what you got to say. You don't read your Bible. The law, it's not the law of the first fruits, it's the principle of the first fruits. And the principle of the first fruits actually takes place in Genesis chapter 4, where Cain and Abel brought the offering. Cain brought some, but Abel brought the first fruits, and therefore the principle is established. If you want to get technical, tithing was actually established 450 years before the law was written in Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. 50 years later. Yeah, but Abraham was the man of faith. Again, let me read a passage here. Second Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
Yeah, it just makes me wonder if uh, this counts as compulsion. Not that, I mean, you know, I mean, I I understand. I, I'm just not as good of a Bible guy as Perry Noble is because he sees the, the real motives as to why God, you know, um, refused to uh, open Hannah's womb at first. Because it was apparently because she refused to consecrate her firstborn. A, a brand new information that's not even in the biblical text, but thankfully Perry Noble knows how to find that. <sighs> Later, Jacob in Genesis chapter 28 told God, I will give you a tenth of all that I own. All through the scripture, God said the, God said the first fruits belong to me. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, God says, bring the tithe. Don't give it, but bring the tithe. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 33, many of us know that verse. It's seek what? Seek first the kingdom of God. I want you to know something that you've never heard in church. That verse is about money. Well, let's test it out. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's uh, from uh, the um, Sermon on the Mount. Hang on a second, Matthew 6. We've covered this. Okay, so Perry Noble says Matthew chapter 6. I think it's verse 30. uh, Let's see here. All right. um, Okay, starting verse 25. Okay, here we go. It's verse 33, by the way. Therefore, this is Jesus preaching. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Yeah, you see, um, this um, this passage has nothing to do with tithing. And seeking first the kingdom of God does not mean tithe first and then God will give you what you need. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not your own, God's righteousness, the righteousness of God. What is that? The righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. This is a perfect, you can perfectly cross reference this with Philippians chapter 3. Boy, he is, uh... yeah, he's a true disciple of Rick Warren, don't you think?
rip that verse out of context and put it on t-shirts, but you read that verse in the context. Verses 19 through 24, Jesus is talking about money. And in verse 25, Jesus says, do not worry, which by the way, the reason he's telling us not to worry is because he provides food and clothes, which we need money to provide for, but which we need money for. Jesus is talking about money. In Matthew chapter six, verse 33, when he says, seek first, he is affirming what happened all the way back in Genesis chapter four, where Abel brought the first fruits. It's in Matthew so apparently, according to Perry Noble, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness means bring in the tithe. And that is not what that text says at all. Does this feel like compulsion to you? Just asking. Chapter 6, verse 33. It's in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, where Jesus says we should tithe. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, where Paul alludes to the tithe. It's in Hebrews chapter 7, where the author of Hebrews talks about the tithe. It's not just Old Testament law. It is for us all. The first 10% off of our income belongs to God. It's his. It's his. Now, here's the thing we've all got to understand. I didn't say this this morning. In Exodus chapter 13, God said the firstborn's mine. And then the Passover took place. And the people did not, did not put the blood over the doorframe and said, I'm not going to consecrate my, my son to you. What happened to that son in that house? He got killed. You're going to either give your 10% to God or he's going to take it. You, you got that out of, out of the Passover, out of Exodus. You either give your 10% to God or he's going to take it. Wow. The Bible says God will not be mocked. For some of you, there's a reason your car keeps breaking down. There's a reason you can't get your kid out of the doctor's office. What? So if you're, hey, you know, here's the deal. If your kid is, um, you know... Let's say you have a child who's accident prone and you keep going to the uh, doctor or you have a kid who's been diagnosed with leukemia. Well, the reason why that happened to you, well, it's because you didn't tithe off the gross to Perry Noble. There's a reason you can't keep a job. You're trying- so the, if you got fired, you lost your job in the bad economy, it's because you refused to tithe. Trying to mock God. He's going, I just want to be first. How do we fix this? You can just put me first. Now, I know people, people argue all the time. And they go, well, Peter, you know, I'm, I'm more of a New Testament giver. I read in the New Testament. They just kind of gave freely. And I'm a New Testament giver. And I say, praise God. Because do you know there's not one example in the New Testament of anyone ever giving a gift that was less than 10%? And I know that you wouldn't try to purposefully use the New Testament to filter your own greed through it. You wouldn't do that, would you? Every gift given in the New Testament was far above the tithe, actually. So if you're a New Testament giver, praise God. You give more than 10%. Word, glad you're here. Number two, I cannot hold on to what God says to let go of. I cannot hold on to what God says to let go of. See, once again, let me say it. When, when we read the Bible, when we hear the word of God... I pre- cannot hold on to what God says to let go of. But I want to point something out here. The uh, God is not mocked passage. I want to read this to you in context. 
Okay, uh, Galatians chapter 6, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Now, what's Galatians about? It's about the heresy in Galatia, where the uh, folks in the Galatian church, well, they were mixing law and gospel. And the gospel got lost. What was the contingent? You're not truly a Christian if you are not circumcised. So after Paul straightens them out between law and gospel, sin and grace, and and the and straightens out the false gospel that they were preaching, Paul goes into an exhortation, you know, basically third use of the law kind of stuff. But watch this: Galatians chapter six, starting at verse one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in the transgressions, you you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load." Now, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. So here we're talking about caring for the, the you know, financially caring for your pastor. Okay, do not be deci- deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that also will he reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. <sighs> yeah, you know, it's um Yeah, it's kind of a stretch here to basically say God is not mocked, and the reason why your car isn't working is well because you're not tithing. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's not what that text says at all. Mm, mm. Flabbergast, just flabbergasted as I'm listening to this. It should want, uh, it should cause us to want to make some adjustments in our life. Adjustments. You know what adjustments are, right? And so I, in the in the book of James, the, the the author says, "Who is James?" By the way, James says, "The word of God is like a mirror." that we're supposed to look into and make adjustments. It's not a mirror we're supposed to look into and then just walk away. For example, many of you showed up here. Uh, you- Where is the gospel, man? You got up this morning, and it, within the first five minutes of getting up, you looked into a mirror, even the guys. Some of you are like, no, I didn't. Retrace your steps. You did. And before you came here tonight, somebody checked out a mirror. And here's what none of you did. You didn't go out to the lake all day and play or goof off or play football or ultimate or whatever. And then you, then you went and looked in the mirror and said, hmm, that's interesting. Somebody ought to do something about that. And then you, just, then you just left. No, I can tell. We got some beautiful people here tonight. Some of y'all made some adjustments. Some of y'all made adjustments. Some of y'all spent a lot of time making some adjustments. Some of y'all should have spent a lot more time. Anyway, so, so, you know what I'm saying. Like you get in front of the mirror and you're like, you, you know, you got the little like thing. You're just kind of looking and stuff and just doing this right here. And anyway, and you kind of got that going on, making adjustments, right? You make adjustments. You don't look in the mirror and go, somebody ought to do something about that and leave. You make- yeah, I didn't need the part about you popping a zit. Yuck. Make adjustments. I was riding down the road the other day and saw a girl driving down the road, putting her, like, eye, what do you call that, eyelash stuff? I don't even know what that is. In her, in her rearview mirror, driving down the road. Driving down the road. 
putting on her eye makeup. Disgusted me. We're doing 60 miles an hour. I got on my phone and started texting a friend. I can't believe what's going on. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. We got to be willing to make adjustments. Here's what was going on with Hannah's life. She was holding out on God. She refused. Man, no, the text does not say that at all. Perry, you are lying. To let go of this idea that the first is mine. And then something happened to her. The Bible says this in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 1, verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Look at this. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. In bitterness of soul. Don't miss that. And have you ever had a bitterness of soul moment? You had to admit something you just didn't want to admit. Like yesterday, for me. Yesterday, I had a bitterness of soul moment. About 3.15, I looked at my wife, Lucretia. I'd been watching TV. I said, baby, I think the Gamecocks are for real this year. I think, I think they got a team. It happens once every 20 years, so we got to celebrate that. It's true, though, man. They look good. And you know what? I don't say, I, it, it, it's bitterness of soul that I say that. I don't like pulling for care. I would pull for the Taliban. Over, I mean, I, I just, I, I, it's bitter. I'm bitter. We've got to admit some things. And you know what? When we admit some things and we're willing to wrestle through some things spiritually, bitterness of soul takes place. Bitterness of soul. And here's what I know. If God is coming after your heart, Tonight, and trying to rip that idol out, you're going to experience some bitterness of soul because it's not easy to let go of something that you've held on to with ferocious passion for a long time. There's going to be a bitterness of soul. Bitterness of soul is what we call intense conviction. And the Bible says that Hannah, I love this, she experienced bitterness of soul. In other words, for years and years and years, she had came to this celebration, she had came to the festival, but all of a sudden, according to the scriptures, she has an encounter with a holy God. That's my prayer because when you and I have an encounter with a holy God, we begin to experience something called bitterness of soul because he's coming after the idols in our heart. And he was coming after Hannah and he was coming after her with ferocious passion. Look at what happened. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty. In other words, she finally recognized who God was. We'll never give God 10% until we recognize who he is. That's the reason a lot of people don't give him 10%. They don't even know who he is. O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Here's what Hannah was saying. Okay, God, I surrender. You win. You're right and I'm wrong. I'm tired of holding out on you because I'm cursed. Where does the text say that she was holding out on God? Oh yeah, he's finding the things in the text that aren't in the text. This is the Perry Noble Spiritual uh, Words Edition. Stick the Bible verse in a hat, stick your face in the hat, and wait for the green spiritual letters to show up. <sighs> and Father, right now, 
I recognize who you are and I surrender. I'm going to let go of what I've been holding on to. And Father, I'm just, from this point on, I'm going to trust you. That's the point that God wants us to get to with whatever issue that we're holding on to. We come to the point where we're willing to wrestle through it. Let me tell you something. It's going to be bitter. That's why the Bible uses so much fight language. Because we've got to fight, we've got to press on, we've got to wrestle through, we've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. And it's going to take a bitterness of soul moment. For some of us here tonight, you're going to let go of something that you've been holding on to, and it's going to be a fight. For some of you, you're fighting it right now. It's a bitterness of soul deal. But Hannah recognized who God was, and bam, she said, I'm going to let it go. I surrender. That's my prayer for all of us as, as, in this church is that we would recognize who God is and, and absolutely let go of what we've been holding on to. Because here's the deal. You're not going to move on to what's next until you deal with what God's dealing with now. You got, to, you got to deal with the now before you deal with the next. And it makes no difference how much you bargain with God. You got to let go. We have people in, in church today that are so addicted to emotion. And listen, I love our six o'clock service. It's an emotional service. In fact, two weeks ago, I got an email. I said, Perry, have you ever considered a service where we do nothing but sing? And my answer is no. Absolutely not. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know why? Because I know people that can show up and raise their hands and sing and leave and go have sex with somebody they're not married to and at least they feel good about themselves because they got, a, they got some chill bumps while they were singing. By the way, the Bible says, by the preaching of the word, there will be repentance, not the singing of the word. But I'll tell you what I did think of. I did think that we should have a worship service where we do nothing but give. Listen, any fool can sing, but giving is worship. Giving is worship. And until you're willing to surrender and let go, I don't care how much you do this. Until you're willing, until you're, this is all law. Where's the gospel? You have any good news for me, Perry? Come on. You've never learned to truly surrender your life to God. Well, I worship him in other ways. You don't have that option. So Hannah's all busted up and crying in the worship service. The preacher looks at her and says, woman, you are drunk. I'm not making this up. I'm, I'm just going to kind of, she goes, I'm not drunk. I'm just bitter in soul, and I'm kind of praying through this. And, and, the, and the priest said, well, whatever you're asking God for, you're going to get. And she took God at his word. And the Bible says this, 1 Samuel chapter 19, she said, um, or verse 19, because Eli told her, you're, okay, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. God's word said you're going to have a son. By the way, the Bible says if we tithe, that, that God will bless us. So we've got to take God at his word. Now, look at this. The Bible says this, early the next morning they arose and... What does the tithe have to do with Hannah? Oh. Worshiped before the Lord and went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah, I love this part. I'm going to get some emails about this, but I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says, all right? Elkanah lay. Lay. <laughs> Bless God. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife. Husband and wife. And the Lord remembered her. Now, God promised Hannah that she would have a baby. So, real question, a real quick question. According to the scripture, did Hannah go home and pray about that? There ain't a woman in this room who's ever had a baby that prayed that baby into existence. 
There's not a woman in here who went, dear God, if you just right now, God, I want to conceive in the name of Jesus. Just give me a baby. Boop. Look at that. Oh, my God. I mean, that, that, that didn't happen. <laughs> Hannah said, there's some work to do. I got some Elkanah. Hey, hey, boy, come. You, mm-mm, mm-mm. Put the computer down. We're not gonna put, We're not gonna surf the web tonight, baby. <laughs> I, I should have warned you all that uh, this part of the sermon is now rated. Uh, what is it? Uh, PG thirteen. I, I don't know. And here's the deal: she didn't get pregnant the first time. She didn't get pregnant the first time because the Bible says in the next verse, so in the course of time, Hannah conceived. In the course of time. In other words, she had to keep working. (laughs) She had sex. She went to Walmart, took a pregnancy test going, it didn't work. She texted Elkanah while he was out in the field. If you'll come home right now, let me tell you what I'll do. Did he come home, gentlemen? Absolutely, he came home. He quit his... Uh, This isn't in the text either. Wow job he he ran red lights to get home he was like "Woo! i like this taking god at his word stuff and they began to work listen you gotta work to make a baby you gotta work it takes effort you gotta sweat some of y'all like i didn't sweat you didn't do it right (laughs) Woo! that's good preaching right there that ain't preaching dang i didn't even say that we're putting this on the podcast that was awesome Sweating now, good Lord. Now, <laughs> y'all done got me disrupted. Listen, listen, listen. The Bible says in verse 20, so in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Now, don't, don't, don't miss this. She was willing to work to make the promise come true. God had promised her a baby, but she was willing to work to make the promise come true. I've had people tell me this when it comes to tithing. She was willing to work. Well, Perry, I tried tithing. I tried it for three weeks, and it didn't work, so I'm not doing it anymore. Well, you didn't work. You didn't work. The story of Hannah and the birth of Samuel isn't about tithing. Because see here, God's outside of time. He knew you were going to go out of business on him in three weeks. Why would he bless you? Would you, in, would you enter into a business partnership with someone that you knew was going to start robbing you three weeks from now? No. You would not. She was willing to work. The reason some of us, listen, listen God's just saying, would, are you, would you be willing to work on this? Some of y'all are like, I can't afford to tithe. If your income was reduced by 10%, would it kill you? This text isn't about the tithe. This is about the faithfulness of God. Unbelievable. You, then you can afford to. I I just can't. Here's what's crazy. I'll preach a message like this and somebody go, yeah, I just can't do it. But you'll go to a car dealership tomorrow and sit in a showroom for six hours trying to figure out how you can make that payment because you care more about the car you drive than the God you serve. Actually, the car you drive might be the God you serve, especially if you're leasing it. I'll lease a car, preacher. Well, you, should, you shouldn't do that. That's stupid. I'm going to pay you a bunch of money for something I don't own, and in three years, I'm going to bring it back and just give it to you. 
okay. <laughs> anyway, I just, I, y'all didn't even ask for that. Now, I, I just, I'm going to make one more point before we go to the last point, and then, and then I'll wrap it up pretty quick. Verse 24. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull. So the boy was weaned and took a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him where? To the, no, whoa, 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 whoa. To the where? House. We're going to talk about that. Because you know where the tithe's supposed to go? The tithe's supposed to go to the, to the house. Mm-hmm. To the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Skip down to verse 27. She said, I prayed for this child. And the Lord has granted me what I ask of him. So now I give him to the Lord. In other words, I pray for this child and God gave it to us. I went to another church so I wouldn't have to give it back at this church. She didn't say that. She said, God gave me this child and so now I give him. God said it's more blessed to what? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Mm -hmm. She said, now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given to the Lord. Not, I'm going to give him to God for three weeks and see how this works out. She said, I'm going to give him, I'm going to lay him, I'm going to, I'm going to lay him down and I'm going to walk away. She gave, and she brought her firstborn, she brought the first to the house. Now I'm here to tell you unapologetically, most pastors start apologizing at this point. I make no apologies. The Bible says very clearly that 10% off the gross comes to the house. This passage isn't about tithing. Because I've had people tell me, well, Perry, you know, I make a lot of money, and so I give 5% at the church, and I give 5% to other charitable organizations. That's great. That's awesome. But the Bible says 10% to the house, to the church, the church. Let me ask you something about the charitable organizations. By the way, you should give to them. We're going to talk about that next week because we've got more than enough. We should give to other charitable organizations. This church gives to other charitable organizations. We've got plenty. We should give out of the overflow. But God says the first 10% comes to the house. Well, I don't know about that. Listen, listen, if you owe money at Sears, you can't run down to Dillard's and pay for it. It's got to go to the place you owe. And God said the church. My question about the other charitable organizations, if you want to give that pushback, is what organization are you financially supporting that even existed 250 years ago other than the church? What organization do you think you're going to be given to today that's going to exist for another 250 years other than his church? God says 10% comes to the house. There's not one example, because I've had people push back and go, well, they gave money to the poor people in the New Testament. Yes, they did, but how did they give it? They gave it through the what? Through the church. I'm telling you, man, wouldn't it be great if people in America just started tithing and then we could go to the government and say, you know what, we got this welfare thing. We don't, y'all, listen, listen, we got it. We got it. We know how to take care of poor people. That was the original intention. But because greedy Christians didn't do it, now the government's doing it, and they're going, they screwed it up. Well, of course they screwed it up. And it's, but it's not their fault. It's the church's fault because we were greedy. 10% comes to the house. You- <clears throat> you, you feeling any compulsion here? You're supposed to, and listen, for those of you that you're like, well, this church is just after my money and they just want my money. Yeah, they do because they can't pay for their big rock and roll show and the mortgage on the big buildings they have that don't even have a cross on it. Yeah, you know, because, well, God gave Perry a vision to do it this way, you know. Listen, listen, let me, let me kind of set you free right here. You don't have to give a dime to this church and we're going to have church next Sunday. 
We're going to cut the lights on. We're going to crank it up. And I don't care who you are or how much money you have. I've had people tell me, hey, I make a lot of money, and I could never give 10% of the church. Would you pray for me? Absolutely, I'll pray for you. I pray that God will reduce your income to the amount where you realize, you cocky, arrogant person, that you can't, you can't outthink God, and he would reduce your income to the level where you can give 10%. You don't need more. You need humility. And God, listen, God knows how to humble people. Anyway, um, can't wait till he does it to you. 10% comes to the house. So for those of you saying you think this church is after your money, here, here's what you do. Go home, get out the yellow pages, and just give your tithe to another church. I don't care. Just pick a church. Just pick one. I don't care. But learn how to give your money to the house. But unapologetically, because I, I it just makes me so mad when preachers do this. Unapologetically, I think this is a great investment. I think New Spring Church has it going on. I'm just going to tell y'all straight up, I really do. Let, let me ask a question. Let me ask a question. Let me ask a question before we get clap happy, all right? Let me ask a question. How many of you have had your life significantly impacted through the ministry of New Spring Church? Raise your hand. Look around. Look around. This is a great investment. This is Why is it an investment to invest in a so-called preacher who seems to be having visions from God to twist God's word to find things in the Bible that aren't even there? And you're so off topic, it's ridiculous. This is all law and no gospel. And, oh, man. This is a great investment. I'm telling listen, I want to invest in a stock that's increasing. Why should you invest in New Spring Church? Two weeks ago, 518 salvations. <laughs> baptizing. How many twisted verses? Hundreds of people. A children's ministry that's blowing up. One of the largest youth ministries in the United States is happening at New Spring Church. You know why? Because people have been given to the house. Listen, that's just with 10% of the people given to the house. What if the other 90% stopped robbing God? Woo! That would be awesome. Now, we do church a little different. How many of y'all like the 80 series? Yeah, you do it different, all right? Yeah, you find things in God's Word that aren't there, make applications from things that aren't even in the text. That sure is different, all right? Woo! Yeah, everybody didn't. We got emails. Why'd y'all do secular music? Um, let me help y'all out a little bit. There is no such thing as a Christian song and a secular song. Jesus did not hang on the cross going, man, I hope somebody gets a double award for this. What? You know, there are songs that talk about God and Christ and what Jesus has done for us. And then there's songs that talk about me. He didn't. There is no such thing. You know why we started out with nothing but a good time? Sweet child of mine. That's what they slayed that. This is what they started off with. <laughs> a poison song. Nothing but a good time. Why'd you do that? 518 people gave their lives to Christ. We, we, don't, we don't do it. And the only people that ask that are church people. Listen, we've been doing secular music since the year 2000. We're not doing anything new. We're going to keep doing church the way God 
called us to do. Because, yeah, you know, ain't nothing but a good time and Highway to Hell and all those other, you know, songs you hear on FM radio. Well, see, the ends justify the means. Right? I mean, Perry, I mean, seriously, using this logic, my question for you is how long before you have a pole dancing ministry there at New Spring? I'm serious. You know, talk about being able to attract some guys. You want to get some more men in your church? You get some liturgical pole dancers swinging off the poles while you're doing your secular music sets. You'll get more people coming to church than, oh, man. You know, put them in those little hottie pants and everything like that. And, you know, and then when people say, why you have a pole dancing, quote, ministry there at your church, you can say, hey, you know why? Because 600 people gave their life to Jesus last week. Church, because God didn't call us to play politics or play religion or try to make sure everybody likes it. God called us to reach the world for Jesus. That's the investment that you make when you invest in this church. Number three, I cannot outgive God. I cannot outgive God. Now, I love that. That's good. In fact, that's the fifth core value. That's the fifth core value. The first value was found people, find people. The second value was save people, serve people. The third value was I can't do life alone. Last week, we talked about growing people what? Change. And tonight, the fifth core value is I can't outgive God. That's in our core values as a church. You and I can't outgive God. It is impossible for anybody in this room to outgive God. You can't do it. You can't. Now, real quick question, real quick question. How many kids did, did, did Hannah have? How many sons did she have? She had one, and she gave him to God. Now, just, I, I, I'm just going to read the Bible to you. I'm just going to read the Bible to you. I love when Christians go, I believe the Bible. That's good. I'm just going to read it. Here we go. Skip over to chapter 2, verse 18. But Samuel, that was her son, was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod every year. His mother made him a little robe and took it to him, and she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, look at this, look, look, look. May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and, and gave to the Lord, and they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Three sons. No, no, no. no don't, don't miss that. She gave up how many sons? One. She gave up one kid. She got back how many kids? Five. One to five. So when you give up 10% of your money, you're going to get 50% back. See, that's how it works. So if you want to get rich, the way you get rich is you just, you know, make sure you give your 10% and then God's going to give you 50% or 100 fold or whatever. That's how it works. See, it's a secret Ponzi scheme. Translation, you can't outgive God. If I said, I'm going to stand at the front of this stage tonight, and as you come forward, for every $1 you give me, I'm going to give you five. How many want that deal? How many want that deal? How many want that deal? Those of you that ain't raising your hand, you're a bunch of liars. How many want that deal? You can't outgive God. If you would believe me, me for it, why won't you believe God for it? You can't outgive God. It is impossible. He's this text ain't about tithing that in malachi chapter this text doesn't promise you that if you give god a buck he'll give you five chapter three if we will trust him with the tithe in the house that he will open the floodgates of heaven by the way you know the only time in the scripture god opened the floodgates of heaven 
was when he flooded the earth in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. He flooded the earth. The earth could not handle the rain. And God says, just like I flooded the earth, I will flood your life with blessing. Translation, God's going, you can't outgive me, and I dare you to try. Now, there's two dangerous theologies in this, and let me kind of expose them very, very quickly. The first one is the prosperity theology. And prosperity. Oh, oh you mean the one that uh, Joel Osteen teaches, the one that T.D. Jakes teaches? T.D. Jakes is a preacher whom you have recommended to people, Perry. You say that boy can preach, and yet he's a prosperity heretic. You going to point that out here? Theology teaches this. You give God $100 if you... If you, sow a, if you sow a $100 seed into my ministry tonight, run to your phones right now. Sow a $100 seed. God's speaking to me. When you get home, you're going to have a Bentley in your driveway. I don't know who I just talked to. You ever want to go through the TV and just smack somebody? Like, because I sent him $100. God didn't send me no Bentley. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I did have a friend call in. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that story another time. I don't believe in prosperity theology. Because here's what prosperity theology teaches. You give to God in order to make him give back to you. God, Isn't that what you've been preaching, Perry? I gave you 100 I, I, come on, Come on. Where's my check? Prosperity theology, the motivation is wrong. We don't give to God just so he'll start giving to us. We give to, listen, we should give to God even if he didn't promise to bless us. But on the flip side is poverty theology. Now, wait a second. You started this sermon off by saying, do you want to be blessed by God? Do you want to have the abundant life? And all of this hinges on people tithing. That's what you said it means to seek first God's kingdom. So we ha- if we're going to be blessed by God, and remember, you, Perry, said that people, who, if your cars are constantly breaking down and you have to put money in to fixing them, it's because you're not tithing. You said to somebody in your congregation or listening that if their child is sick and you have hospital bills to pay, it's because they're not tithing. How is that qualitatively different than the prosperity gospel? I don't see a difference. And poverty theology basically teaches the poorer you are, the more godlier you are. Now, is that true? Come on, y'all. Any of y'all ever, been, any of y'all ever got robbed? Robbed, I mean, somebody broke into your car, stole your stereo, somebody broke into your house, stole your TV, right? Was it by the rich person in your neighborhood? Or was it by the crack addict? I've never been robbed by a rich person. It's always the poor people that pull a knife on me. The equation to poor... What about the Ponzi scheme artist? Who, who was that? Michael Madoff? Was he, uh, you know, a crack addict? Or equals godly might be one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. Because at the end of the day, let me tell you something. At the end of the day, and I make no apologies for this, God wants you blessed if you're his child. God wants you to be blessed. I have a little girl. Her name is Karis. I want her to be blessed. She's not blessed if she's walking down a back alley finding a half a biscuit and a, and a trash can. She's blessed when she owns the biscuit company. You know what I'm saying? That's blessed. 
When God brought the children of Israel out of the desert, he brought them into the promised land to a place that had houses they did not build, wells they did not dig, and vineyards they did not plant. I make no apology that God wants us to be in a place of blessing, but until we learn to put him first, we will never experience the blessing that God does have for us. So don't, don't, I'm, you're not going to leave tonight and get a picture of me and Lucretia and she's going to have pink hair and looks like she lost a paint. Now this is all law. None of this is motivated by the cross. None of it. Ball gun war. We're going to ask you to finance our brand new jet. And we're, like we don't even have a jet. Like I, my car's five years old. All right. I'm, I'm just, I'm not doing it. I'm just saying you got to learn how to put God first. Let me tell the story and I'm done. Well, I'll tell the story in a verse. Um, you can't outgive God. Now, God knew I was preaching on this. I, I'm not making a bit of this up. This is true. A couple, couple weeks ago, God woke me up between 2 and 3 in the morning. And uh, I kind of wish he could start telling me stuff at lunch. Um, but So now apparently God woke him up and he's preaching this story because God spoke to him. Uh, this is on par with the Bible apparently because, well, you know, God spoke to him in the middle of the night. Nothing. And I was aware of a need. A friend of mine um, had a need. They, they've kind of adopted a uh, financial need. And God spoke to my heart and said, you need to write him a check for $1,000. I was like, you give him $1,000. <laughs> and God said, I'm going to. Through you. So I got up the next morning, and I was hoping Lucretia would talk me out of it. I said, baby, these people, and you know, $1,000. She said, oh, yeah, I hear you. If uh, God told you to do it, then you need to do it. I trust you as the leader of our home. Like, so you don't want to talk me out of this? No. I said, all right. So I wrote a check for $1,000 mad the whole time. You ever wrote a check mad? <laughs> already tired this month. I don't know what, what you think you're pulling. What you think you're running up there, all right? And the memo wrote, like, blessing. I didn't mean it or whatever, you know. <laughs> Folded it and put it in the mail. The next day, the next day, for those of y'all that think I might be, t- I-, I can't do this, Margie, where's Margie? Margie, raise your hand, Margie's right here. The next day, Margie, she works on our staff, she brought me an envelope. She said, you got this in the mail today. She said, you remember when we refinanced your house several months ago? Well, your mortgage company sent you a check and they're paying you back some money that's being refunded to you. And I opened up the check, and it was for $1,348. I got pumped! Net gain of $348. Ta-da! I went home and told Lucretia, we just made $348 on that deal, baby. Who's next? Who's next? I got pumped. You know what? Everybody in this room ought to have that attitude. Who's next? You know why? Because you can't outgive God. The Bible says this in John chapter 3, verse 16. It's the most popular verse in Scripture. For God so loved the world. Yeah, here comes gospel. Finally, we're getting some gospel. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Do not say you love God if you're not giving to him. You're going to turn John 3.16 into a law passage. Unbelievable. For God so loved the world that he what? He, he gave. He gave. For God so loved the world, he gave his, his one and only son. Translation, Jesus was God's tithe. Uh, I, I, I'm going to lose it.
Jesus was God's first. He was his only son. Jesus was the tithe. And then the rest of that verse says that whoever, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God gave Jesus as the tithe and received back millions of sons and daughters. Don't miss this. God couldn't even outgive himself. Why don't you talk about Christ's death for my sins and for even the people who don't always give God everything they should? The solution is you just need to try harder and follow the example that God gave here. So you can't outgive God. So, so, so what are you wrestling with tonight? Because you can't hold on to what God's saying to let go of. For some of us, it is forgiveness. For some of us, it is morality. But for most of us in this room, there's a money idol in our heart, and God is ferociously coming after it. And here's my prayer. Here's my prayer. You'll get this right. You won't even wait till next week. You can give online. You got the, you got the bulletin. You just got this little envelope in it. You can tear that business reply off. You can put a tithe check in it and mail it to us this week. Or go home and pull out the yellow pages and mail it to some other church. I don't care. But you got to get, listen, he's Lord of some or he's Lord of all. He didn't die on the cross to be Lord of some. Let's pray. I don't even think we got a gospel nugget because he turned the gospel into a law passage. See, the whole purpose of Jesus dying on the cross was to show you you need to tithe. Unbelievable. Wow. <sighs> Folks, let me, let me tell you this. You don't do what you ought to do. Some of you listening have made money your idol. Others have made other idols of other things. Power, greed, sex, the, the, the list can go on and on. Entertainment, whatever. And when you ask the question, have you given all to God? Is there something that you're holding on to that you shouldn't be, that you need to let go of? The answer is, you bet your bippy there's things you're holding on to that you should need to let go of. And what you're holding on to is sin. What's the solution for this? Why don't you just try harder? God isn't mocked. Try harder. Do the right thing. That's just stark, naked, self-righteous obedience. And you know what? There's no comfort in that. Because when will you know whether or not you've given enough? The law doesn't say give till you've given 50, you know, you're in the 50th percentile of everybody. God gets everything. So what does that mean? That means you stand condemned by God's law. And there isn't enough good works. There isn't enough money that you can give. There isn't enough penance that you can do to make up for the debt that you've incurred. And looking at the example of Jesus, you know, God the Father giving the Son as a tithe isn't going to help you any. Let me instead tell you what Jesus did for you. All of your idolatries, all of your sin, all of your rebellion, all of your shortcomings— Christ died for on the cross, and yes, it's for you. All of the thunderings you are hearing, all of the shudders you are feeling, all of the pain that you're feeling, all of the threats that you're feeling from God's law, 
You should be feeling them because you are not measuring up. The solution is not you trying harder. The solution is what Jesus has done for you. He gave perfectly for you. He was sinless for you. He took your punishment for you, and he's offering you forgiveness and mercy for free. Repent and be forgiven. And then I defy you. I defy you to not have a life of good works that flow from the knowledge of what Christ has done for you on the cross. It can't be done. You will no longer give out of compulsion or fear. You will give out of the abundance and the overflow of your heart because the abundance and overflow of your heart will be nothing but gracious and gratitude because of what God has done for you. For in Christ you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God replaces your heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and he sets you free from bondage to all of your idols and to sin, death, and the devil, and it's all free and it's done for you. Now, what I've just said is a completely different message than what Perry said. One is the gospel. The other is nothing but the law. If you want to be saved by the law, you can be, but you've got to live it perfectly. If you haven't, then I recommend that you rewind this MP3 and listen again to the gospel that I preached to you. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and that means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions. Please give them freely from your heart, not out of compulsion. We depend upon your gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to preach the gospel and this discernment to other people. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Please fill one of them out. Not because by doing so you'll be blessed, but because you have already been blessed through the preaching of the gospel. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there pirate christian till tomorrow may god richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins amen Amen.